A word to the wise. We are an explicit podcast tackling content with adult themes as well as entering spoiler territory if you aren't caught up with us. That would be through the entirety of Secret History. A, an entry into the Ars Arcanum, but also now a standalone book. We're definitely going to be talking about Era 1 of Mistborn. And we will probably talk a little bit about Era 2 of Mistborn. So if you've been following along with the show, you are probably in the right spot. Hey there, this is Cross. And I'm PJ. And PJ doesn't know the word novella. And we are Words and Whiskey, a podcast for veteran and novice readers alike. We tackle fiction novels and love to talk about what we're drinking. You should think of us as your intoxicating weekly book club. You're right. What does that word mean, Crossland? <laughs> Can you define it for me? It would be a less than novel length or a feature length. Usually, I would say most people call a novella uh, somewhere between 140 and 240 pages. So if I have a book that's 139 pages, it's probably it? still a novella. That's, Some people call them novelettes. <laughs> Some people call them novelettes. Not everyone. It's not a universally used phrase. Novelitos? Novelitos. Here's my novelito for you. Yes. Yes, quite. Okay, so today is our second episode and final episode discussing the novella Secret History by Brandon Sanderson, and we're going to chat about part four through part six. I do want to say at the top here, I have decided that I am going to record a Lost Metal review thingy. I don't know how long it's going to be, but it's just going to be me talking to myself about the whole thing and mostly probably just some rambly thoughts about things specifically that I won't be able to talk to PJ about. I'll be I'll be listening. Eventually, you're going to listen to that and you're going to be like the ravings of a madman in his closet. <laughs> Can't but edit that one. You cannot. You cannot. Thank you for editing today's episode. But first, Let's talk about what we're drinking. PJ, what are you having on this fine evening? I had grand plans to make myself something, and I, I've, I've figured out the proper setup for recording a reel for Instagram, and I wanted to kick that off with the port lemonade that I really like to make. But I had a prior commitment that I had briefly forgotten about, so I had to run. So instead, I just threw together a really quick old-fashioned. Nice. I do not have orange at my home right now. So instead of an orange peel, it has a tangerine peel. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. Which those do those have really really thin peels. So yeah, they very do different. Not peel pro well. I mean, like it's it's the same sort of citrus. Did it did it yield similar results? Not much of anything, to be perfectly mm. honest. You, you can taste a little bit of citrus, but I mean, I, I'd assume the actual expression of orange and tangerine are fairly similar. Mm -hmm. So, I don't know. I'd like to do a side-by-side -side sometime to really see where where the tangerine <laughs> changes or differs from, from orange. But in respect to like just using the peel as opposed to juice, because juice is kind of obvious. But I saw on Instagram 
a really, really cool cocktail that I want to try involving tangerines. It has <laughs> muddled tangerine and it, like it's a tangerine sour kind of deal with gin. So gin and Aperol, <laughs> I think. So I, I want to give that a shot sometime. I, I saved the recipe. I've noticed our Instagram feed is almost entirely different cocktails. So that's been fun. Yeah, I definitely, obviously we follow a lot of the meme pages and other things like that, but I also have to follow them on my personal page and I have blocked them so that you aren't spoiled for the most part to avoid any, any of that. So, yeah. Yep, exactly. But following that up, I have Lua Brewing Company's Baby Blue Sedan, which is, I've had it on the show before. I didn't realize they still had another can of it. So that's what I'm drinking, but it is their boysenberry, raspberry, blueberry, plum sour. Hmm. Cool. And then my flower vase full of water. All right. Are you drinking tonight? I know you talked about not. <clears throat> I did settle that in order to talk about this, I was probably going to have to drink a little bit. So I did. I didn't make a cocktail. I just poured three ounces of whiskey. Um, Good man. So... I have three ounces of Survivor Cut bourbon, the second cut. So this is what you one of the whiskeys that you and I shared in Salt Lake. I think this mm-hmm. wasn't this. No, your favorite was the Woodenville, I think. Yes. Was it the rye? No, I liked the rye, but it was odd. <laughs> okay. I, I, I did like it, but there was a funkiness to it that I think you and I both noticed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, as as stated, I knew that I don't know if we we actually said this in any form of the episode that we were talking about or whatever, but one of those <laughs> bottles had green chartreuse in it right before, and so it may have been like in the seal and may have permeated a little bit, and that still feels like it was the most likely candidate for potentially wherever yeah. that flavor went. So, yeah, that could be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I've got three ounces of that, some water, some tea, because I have to keep this cough under control as much as possible. So, yeah. All All right. right. So, PJ, before we talk about these parts and these chapters here, how did you feel about this week's reading? So, I tried to put any sort of negative Nancy-isms that you, you had expressed to me out of my mind while reading it. By and large, I enjoyed the reading. The first two parts four and five i really enjoyed there there is some troubling problems <laughs> that i have with with part six and i have a feeling you are going to dig into them much harder than i will overall there were bet there, there were breadcrumbs there in the story in the in the initial novels so i i'm not that upset about it but there, there is some agency concerns when it comes to, to a couple of our characters that it really cut them down at the knees. Yeah, I, I think that it's fair to say that up top, I think it's fair for me to say, I don't think that I had talked about it too much last week, but this is my least favorite Cosmere entry. And it is a lot of people's like in their top fives. It's, it's a, it is a fan favorite by and large because of Kelsier's return 
And a lot of these sort of connections that are made Cosmere-wide in the way that a lot of things that really hadn't been touched on or explained are touched on and explained very clearly, which is really excellent in some capacity. And I do really appreciate it. I actually think that up until part six, for the most part, with a couple of a handful of exceptions of things where Kelsier feels more like a caricature, but that's not worth murdering a story over, like really degrading, you know, what it, what I think it's worth or like degrading the grade of the book. For what Brandon is going for here, I think he accomplished it. I think he did what he wanted to do pretty well. I just don't like what he was trying to do to begin with. And that's my issue, I think, by and large, with with Secret History, with part six. But I like a lot of it. Like, I loved parts of it. Uh, significantly I, I think that there are some excellent excellent moments in here that are like real tearjerkers that we'll that we'll get to and that we'll get to talk about but i'm going to talk about this up top just for a second there's a postscript did you listen to the postscript on the short story or on this novella that he did uh, like, yes yeah so he he says he talks about kelsier and kind of the origins of the story is the po- postscript here and talks specifically about wanting to make sure that character death is a really important, real, and tangible thing inside of the universe. And was very worried and concerned about that and unwinding the death being his concern and then telling the story and needing to tell it because of where it wraps in with Bands of Mourning. And I think he had the wrong concern to me. I don't think that any of that was a problem for me at the very least i think all of that worked like the kelsey are not dying for the most part works for me to some degree but i think like you said it's it's taking away that character agency uh for two or three of our characters that like puts a dagger in my heart for an entire trilogy of books that i originally really liked and this tarnished them in the middle of us recording those episodes for me and i was having such a hard time being as excited about those books as i was a week prior to that knowledge and information yeah and is it better or worse that that seems to have been the plan the entire time like he he wrote those parts of that uh, of those books with the understanding that that's what was going on in the background as opposed to like i think overwriting the 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 driving forces so so this is like this is often something that people cite with like as the the danger of prequels right the danger of prequels is that you know the outcome already right and so that there's there's no stakes in writing a prequel this is weird because it's like a mid quill and it like really just fills in gaps right the problem is for me in the end is that i think that it very specifically undermines things that otherwise felt like character moments and moments where characters were picking up the legacy of kelsier and running with it potentially or the legacy of hope or of the survivor and make it literal to the point of where, A, I don't think his sacrifice matters at all if he's just going to literally be there and, like, being pushing on their spiritual entity to push them forward. Boo. And I, I yeah, we'll, we'll talk about those things specifically when we get there. So I don't want to I don't want to burn this bridge too brightly before we we get there. But I, I think that that's my issue is that it while the skeleton framework was there in the original trilogy for some of this even if okay 
if this were inserted in exactly where it should be and read exactly where it happened, I don't think it would work because I think it would have the same problem of undermining the character's actions. And that's Mm. where I don't think it worked. That's why it doesn't work for me. Do you think it would have worked if it was less explicit about it? I think it did work when it was less explicit about it. Okay. Does that make sense? Like, I think it did work when it was less explicit. I mean, when before I read this, it worked with Kelsier being in the background, you know? Okay. But reading this. Yeah. If instead of replaying some of the scenes from Kelsier's perspective, if it had just kind of narrated that Kelsier helped nudge Spook along. I, I still think that that does some undermining of where like it, Kels- where Spook comes to the conclusions, right? And like where, you know... <sighs> I, I agree, but would that have been better for you? than than its current state yeah but to what degree i guess is kind of the thing and at that point what's the point yeah yeah i think the only one the only one of the moments in this that stands on its legs kind of for me as foreshadowing and, and relevance is the moment where spook wakes up after the fire and remembers this conversation basically with kelsier that we didn't hear that we hear in secret history um, we hear we kind of have bits of it, I guess, in in Hero of Ages. But as opposed to it being hallucinations, as it appears in Hero of Ages, having it be an actual thing works. That's about it, though. And he's he like says yeah. like he was told by Kelsier and is very mysterious to say it. And like that that works as like a solid landing point out of all of them for me. But I think that's the only one. How do you? We'll get into we'll we'll get into it more and more. So yeah. I won't I won't burn the content. Yeah, um, I, I think I think that there's a larger conversation to be had here, probably when we're done with it to some degree, like where where this ends up. But I had a tough time, man. This made me want to bail on era two in the middle of era one. I felt very discouraged reading this this story because it feels like it undermines the thing that we taught that I care about the most in these in these stories and the the thing that we try to bring to the foreground is really that focus on character and this story subverts characters for a character that was dead and I've no again I've no problem with them coming back to life I think that actually that part plays very well and I think it's exciting going into the future but <laughs> I think burning a trilogy what feels to me like burning a trilogy of books for the sake of one character that's important in the future that kind of wasn't that big of a deal anyway just rubbed me in the worst ways Mm -hmm. yeah that's that's understandable yeah as far as the the not not prologue but before the prologue the the intro to the book it is stated that there is major era one spoilers and then minor bands of mourning spoilers specifically. Mm-hmm. I'm racking my brain trying to think of what that spoiler would be. Do you like what comes up here? Well, there's a couple of different components, right? One of them is the reveal that Kelsier held the power of ages, which doesn't, which isn't really revealed, or that he held preservation which is revealed in bands of morning is like he ascended right first right. okay um and so i think the other part here is that it also indirectly spoils the sovereign the sovereign um 
as Kelsier. Okay. Because of gotcha. the fact that he's alive. So. Gotcha. All right. Well, let's get into the chapters. We talked quite a bit about kind of feelings here. And I think that for anyone listening at home to any of our episodes, Well of Ascension onwards, probably heard me with a lot of disdain address Kelsier in different moments. And now you know why. And this idea of undermining some of these character arcs, because I was very, very pissed off about it, especially when we were recording Heroes, uh, Hero of Ages. And again, I think that's also why it slipped in my mind, in my mark, um, is because of this goddamn story. So, all right, we're going to talk about it now. Okay, part four, Journey, chapter one. We get this really cool bit, and I love I love parts four and five of this story, and three and two and one are all pretty good, too. So I'm going to have a good time up until we have to talk about a couple of different moments in six. So, Kelsier runs west towards the ocean following a canal from Luthadel, and he has this sort of realization that, of course, that he can't beat Ruin, but that he can maybe try to help Vin beat Ruin, and so is trying to work his way around the problem in a big way. And it's really, really funny to me that he ends up running across this ocean and effectively because he's in the cognitive realm. We get a lot of interesting exploration of the cognitive realm here. But as long as he's in the cognitive realm, as long as he doesn't think he's tired, he isn't tired and can just keep running. And I got a, I got the funniest fucking question the other day in my AMA on Instagram about if Kelsier or I could run longer or Iron Man shaped Crossland could run longer. And... I said me, but obviously, like, that can't be true. <laughs> like, it That's can't. That's fucking lie. I, I watched you <laughs> run in that goddamn Iron Man. I, I was for like a little drunk bit. for the third time that day, and I was running. Like, I was keeping up. <coughs> you motherfuckers. Nothing was more <laughs> like there's just this level, not of not of intentional condescension, but almost of, like, ignorance of, like, running along with me during that last stretch where it was like... I just want you to die. Like, I just, <laughs> I just need to get across this finish line. And I was like, I was happy that you were clapping for me. I remember clapping, but old man Neil and I kept our pace and we made it. But yes, yeah, and Kelsey then you shoved that old me. man down to the ground so he couldn't finish, right? I did not, but he did tell me <laughs> to take off in front of him and I did not. I finished with him. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. That was a cool story. Yeah. Uh, because I don't think I would have made it otherwise. So, way to go, Neil. Thank you. Uh, well, t- I'll tell the full version of that story someday. But anyway, <clears throat> yeah. What would you make of this whole run? The run across the ocean, the long, the long ocean, and everything else, or rather towards the ocean. We aren't towards we aren't running the at the ocean yet. Uh, I think at this point we don't it. get any new landscape, right? Like throughout this part, we're we're in familiar territory, or semi-familiar territory at the very least yeah yeah he's following a canal from luthadel and then he runs into an old town shortly hereafter that he's been to before so it's you know it's nothing crazy i mean we've never been to long swallow that's spoken about but Mm -hmm. what it did do for me is fuck with my scope of time and I, i think that's pretty consistent throughout this entire part because there's so much that's happening and things things jump pretty quickly and it feels like it's a a single trip a single travel that's gonna take a day but it's weeks however long he he spends a lot of time running and it's hard to keep track of the of the timeline there yeah i think i think he says 
months. I think he spends months running, um, which was important mm-hmm. for the passage of time. Because obviously we know where where the story ends right before this, right? We are at, we are just after Well of Ascension, and Hero of Ages hasn't really begun yet. That doesn't really happen until 6. So this is sort of that intervening time period in which Elend becomes this Emperor Mistborn that we kind of know when we see him in Heroes, and you know, Vin comes into their own and they start finding those caches that we see the last of basically, or the second to last of at the beginning of the hero of ages. So he has to be gone for a long time. So he's running for months. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Kind of cool. Like the, the mechanics of it is pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it yeah. is. So it's cool, but There's, it's also where is the line drawn of what, what physical mechanics is he beholden to and what is he not? Well, I think that's the point, right? Is that he's not beholden to physical mechanics. Except um, for how fast he can run. Yeah. So there's, and the fact that he has to run. Is is that a problem with his own being, not being able to understand another point, another way to travel? Maybe. I mean, because he can, he can not think about being tired and not be tired, you know? He's just so got to think about being somewhere else. Yeah, or nowhere to be, potentially. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, I think that there's mechanics, there's mechanical questions there um, that are left intentionally to ponder to some degree over the course of this week. And we'll explore, we explore more of this when we get to chapter three in the fire and sort of the the ability of these things to maintain their intent and... Uh, things like that from the physical realm that he's able to drag around in the cognitive realm some. So we'll talk about that more in a second. But first, we have to talk about Chapter 2, which is the town in which he used to live called Longsfollow. He realizes that he's been running and suddenly feels very exhausted because he comes to this realization and stops effectively. You know, it's it's kind of like... It's very interesting to me, especially when you compare it to pewter dragging and, like, the effects of pewter dragging, where you don't really recognize it until you stop. And part of me is like, is there any sort of similarity there that's a cognitive realm thing that's granted by the power that makes it have a similar impact? Perhaps. Hmm. Or Hmm. is it just that's the closest comparison that he has off the top of his head? I don't... He doesn't compare it to pewter dragging. Yeah, he does. I don't think, does he? Does he? Oh, shit. All right. Well, there you go. Um... But, I mean, it's still, you know, to the same degree, keeping your feet going in front of each other for that long, I'm sure, is its own problem. Uh, but he remembers the the entire sort of revolution that happens here, that he killed several noblemen here in retribution for killing a ska girl, that, and that had forced him and Mare to skip town at the time. In the end, his sort of retribution, his, his seeking of justice, his path of retribution caused more death and more problems in the long run. And my question for you here, PJ, is like, it's kind of been Kelsier's whole fucking thing. It's not thinking about the consequences of his actions. Yeah. Right? Yeah. He's he pretty notorious for that, I would say. Yeah. While also somehow being known for his like audaciousness, like well, his daring, his calculated risk taking, you know, like he, he thinks about the consequences, but not really necessarily on a long-term scale Mm -hmm. yeah he considers them but it feels to me especially that he only considers the consequences as they relate to his intent 
right? If we think about like the Lord Ruler, for instance, his intent was to free the Scot from the Lord Ruler and the impression therein. And he was being manipulated to do so in the end by ruin. Mm-hmm. So, unintended consequence: destroying the governing body. Agency. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> you know what though i actually this is something i i have an entire i wrote i wrote a thing to talk about specifically about ruin versus kelsier's comparisons inside of the story because i think that's relevant i think that that's an interesting thing to consider and talk about but we have to get there before i i want to engage in that conversation ruin feels like a malevolent port force and so therefore it's it feels a little bit better a little bit more okay um, but would you make of this? Would you make of the whole town story and therein a little bit more on Mare sort of thoughts there? Do you think that well, Mare we, would be we, proud of Kelsier's actions? It's hard to know because we don't really know if Mare is complicit in in these actions. She seems to the little bit that we get of her background and of her opinions. She seems disappointed in the fact that they have to skip town but other than that we don't really get much of anything so i struggle to really have any strong feelings about what mayor would want you know or what mayor would actually approve of sure yeah that that makes sense to me i guess there's a lot of weight placed on mayor repeatedly throughout the story because of kels here right not only this story but also in mistborn proper because that's the reason that he's doing what he's doing. That's the reason that he snapped. That's the reason that he survived. It's what he survives for. It's the cover of the the novella, right? Is Mare's flower, the Marewolf flower. The that set of triangles kind of interlocking with each other. Diamonds, not triangles, but diamonds. So, yeah. I, I guess that's why I still ask the question, because it's it seems like all of this is inspired by Mare. But I don't know if it's what Mare actually wanted. And we don't necessarily, we don't have perfect context, right? We don't have the perfect backstory and everything else. But from what we know of Mare and like her appreciation of art and the idea of like her wanting to reclaim the world and turn it back to something that's green and being really a, a dreamer of sorts, I can't help but feel like if if Mare is more of preservation. I, I can't help but feel like more R- Mare is more of preservation and Kelsier is more of ruin in that way. Okay. I can get behind that. That said, she also seems like somebody who would strive for the ideal and that sometimes necessarily means throwing things into turmoil to achieve that ideal. Like I, I could see her being supportive of a revolution. Yeah, I guess I just wanted to pick your brain on Mare. Okay. Seems like a pretty cool lady. Honestly, like I I feel like she is more symbol than character. We we do not in, in at least as far as I can tell, we don't get her actual like opinions on things. Everything that we get about Mare is through the scope of Kelsier. And we know pretty well how twisted some of those ideas can be. And they can, they can be convoluted and, and manipulated into something that serves him. Yeah, yeah, that's true. We also get a little bit of Mare from Marsh, but that's, yeah. 
so that's where I think some of my my opinions come from to some degree. And then we get a little bit from Sazed as well, talking about the flower and the religion and her sort of the the way in which she lived. In mm-hmm. its in its own way, it's very similar. I I do agree with you on the more symbol than character to some degree, to a similar degree to Hemanthus Blossoms and she who we won't name. Yeah. So. Yeah. Both of them have two vowels. <laughs> <laughs> That's all you have to figure it out. And, and maybe no the other book series cues. that we covered. And no cues. What is this, like reverse Scrabble? The fuck are yeah. these hints, PJ? All right. <laughs> All right. I think it's a pretty good hint. You know who I'm talking about. I know exactly who you're talking about, but I also, I was the one who referenced it to begin with, you (laughs) bastard. (laughs) No. (laughs) Okay. But we kind of end this chapter with Kelsier pleading for preservation for more information on where Mare is. And I believe preservation here says that she slipped into the beyond. But the man in the room, there's this strange kind of crazy man in the room that Kelsier is able to communicate with. And it begins to paint this picture of the ability to talk with people of whom are maybe just a little bit broken from the cognitive realm. They can hear between realms almost, it seems. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. I so badly want more hard like hard mechanics on how that works you know mm-hmm. like it's 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 described as a fluke or as a as a flaw but like that's a bug that could be exploited and if nothing else if we learn nothing else from kelsier over the point of this or the section of this novella it's that he's looking for bugs to exploit. That's his entire game now is what, what can I do? What can I use? What can I manipulate? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So let me understand this properly Mm -hmm. just to have it set out. Most people cannot hear him no matter what, but they see him as a shadow, like as a, as the mist spirit. So he only appears as the mist spirit when when powered by preservation's power not when he's holding the power but when preservation when he's like riding on those waves those pulses because preservation's power gives him a little bit of a physical manifestation okay can is he visible to most people for instance i don't think he's visible here to this person he's just a voice that brings up so many more questions that we will get to i think in the next chapter or not the next chapter the next part yeah anything else in this little bit i don't think so cool all right with that we go into chapter three of the section kelsier stops at a fire pit and learns how to start a fire with his mind and will a fire through the through the realms effectively which is really interesting he notices a lot more ash on the ground from the ash mounts being overly active during this time frame this to give us a passage to show the impact the ruin being released is beginning to have on the land trying to place us somewhere in time among the stories and the scar traveling west trying to escape the ash he's lonely and craves interaction with anyone in this moment even hoyd even that silver-haired bastard that that guy that guy that the guy. drifter the drifter as he comes to him 
starting a fire with your mind just I don't know why this is on my brain, but the I want to learn how to blow shit up with my mind guy from Accepted. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Or the entirety of Men Who Talk to Goats. Men Who Stare at Goats. Men Who Stare at Goats. Yes. Yes. Mm. Um, yeah. It it definitely fits. I, I think that the other part of this that's important is that this is the beginning of his experimentation with things in the cognitive realm. And so this is when he begins to try to bend it to his will in a big way. And I think here it's it's less that he manifests a fire and more that he sees the impression of a fire from the physical realm and calls it and kind of cultivates it into being in the cognitive mm-hmm. realm. It's always been warm. And so he's able to kind of coax it into a fire in the cognitive realm. Yeah, I liked the expansion of the identity trait, I guess, that's been explained for for beings to cover more than just beings, to cover objects and to cover really everything. It makes for a much more complete scope of the world. Yeah, yeah, and it it shows especially when we're talking about objects, this the intention of an object is very important to its ability to manifest in the cognitive realm. Mm-hmm. And I, if I remember correctly, it's specifically a very strong sense of identity because it was from a fire that had been burning for probably generations. Mm-hmm. Right? A fire it pit. was w- yeah. one of the ska hearths. Yes. I said intention. You're right. It's identity. This is this is identity. Intention is more of a spiritual thing. This is the cognitive thing is that identity in the way that that's associated. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, boy. But very, very cool in the way that this is done and the way that it also shows how difficult it is to move something that has an identity that's in a physical location as he tries to store this in the bag and kind of keep it with him. And we see these things that he grabs eventually as he heads across the ocean fade, which becomes really interesting later. Right. As they get further and further away. So he continues West and that's kind of the end of this chapter. It's a pretty brief one. Did you have any, any other thoughts? No, I, I, that's, that's pretty much the gist of it. That was a, a pretty, like you said, brief chapter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Got some important bits out of it, though. Right. Yeah, I think there are, there are a number of important components here. Okay, so we get even more here on Chapter 4, with Kelsier finally reaching the ocean after weeks of traveling. He's collected several things along the way that we've been talking about, these different cognitive versions of items to keep them and store them in these little balls of mist that he puts in his bag. He's got a cloak that is kind of like a mist cloak in the way that it's tattered on the bottom that he's wearing at this point that gives him that sort of it's a reminder of that same kind of identity um, that he had before and so it feels feels similar in its own right despite not being identical and such preservation but there's no response what what do you make of the objects and everything there we, we kind of talked a little bit about this but the the way that these move with him and sort of the changes here and the identity therein. So it almost feels backwards to me that something with a very, very strong identity to like a very strong identity fades slower than something with a weaker identity. And at face value that, that seems to make sense. But the fact that it's so rooted in its location would make me feel like, 
the stronger it is rooted to that location, the quicker it would fade as you get farther away from it. You know? Does that does that track? Isn't that exactly what it does? I thought I thought it was the other way around. I thought it was just a strong identity meant that it faded slower. No, I think it's a strong identity that fades faster. Never mind. Then I'm wrong. I swear to God. Man. Oh man. Now I gotta find it. You might yeah, you might be completely right. Cuckoo kachoo. Cuckoo kachoo. Might be isn't good enough for me, PJ. Damn it. I know. Also, can we talk about the line that he has about a man drowning in acid versus drowning in beer? Do you were you I I just I, I flinched at it a little bit. Like, yes, either way the man is drowning, and I guess the substance doesn't really make a difference. And it's a, a very slight difference, and I think that's what he's trying to get at, but it just felt like a not my favorite comparison. Yeah. I remember that comparison. I don't remember the exact context. All in all, the ska were better off out here than they were in the inner dominances. It was like saying that a man drowning in beer was better off than one drowning in acid. Oh. It's fine. I yeah, just, I think that makes sense. No, I'm I'm not saying that it doesn't make sense. I'm just saying I don't love it as a comparison. I think it makes sense. But mm-hmm. it definitely it makes sense for Kelsier to say in a big way because it it again harkens back to that idea that he's talking about the freedom here and only absolute freedom will do. Um, you know, there's no there's no shades of change for Kelsier. Yeah. I I think I kind of like it. Okay. Um, I think there could have been probably a better explanation or a better comparison to draw, but mm-hmm. saying that marginally better but still lethal, what's the effective difference? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I did also want to bring up, chapter four starts off with an incredibly strong line. Kelsier, the survivor of death, finally cra- crested one last hill and beheld an incredible sight spread before him land mm-hmm. but the survivor of death with a capital d on death yeah really kind of puts it puts it into perspective is the t in the also capitalized no so it's not a full i mean you wouldn't always capitalize that you'd only capitalize it at the beginning of like the i don't know titles are weird so when an object was recovered or worse destroyed in the physical realm, its identity changed and the spirit would return to the location of its body. Abandoned objects were best ones that had been owned for a long while. So they had strong identity, but that currently had nobody in the physical realm to care for them. So the thing is, is if it moves in the physical realm, it disappears from where it is in the cognitive realm. Okay. So it's not as though it's fading necessarily. That doesn't quite he, answer. He pulled he pulled out the ball of mist that was his campfire and unfolded it, bathing in its warmth. It was starting to fray. The logs pocked with misty holes. He could only guess that it carried it too far from its origin, and the distance was distressing it. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, that, that makes sense, but he makes a note of how strong the identity is because of how long it had been in that same spot and had been burning. But I don't think the relative strength of the identity has anything to do with the distance that it can travel or at the very least i don't think that connection has been drawn in any substantive way okay so far other than abandoned objects work best yes because there's something in place right and right yeah 
strong identity seems to imply that it can go a distance, but we don't know what a weak identity necessarily looks like. We don't see that experimentation here. Okay. Oh, man. The cognitive realm, my friend. Welcome to Shades mm-hmm. Mark. Boy, oh boy. And realmatic theory at large. Okay, cool. <laughs> cool. So when he calls out to preservation, instead, Ruin shows up. AT shows up, the the red embodiment. And it's it's very interesting, I think, the way that he's described almost as like Ruin is described as this bundle of snakes in the sky, which I think is a particularly wonderful image for the god, this sort of terrifying force. But AT here is this the redhead that we saw fall out and has like I, I think it's described as like needles that are like approaching the skin or seem to almost be not poking out but like mm-hmm. almost extruding or going up until um yeah very very interesting what do you make of the conversation that they have about doom about change about ruin loving having created life with preservation and kind of this different spin on the same speech that he gives vin i i think i want to actually start beforehand with the depiction of this the serpentile sort of cluster in the sky Mm -hmm. is that not exactly how the deepness was depicted in the stained glass Ooh, question do you have a rationale for why you want to well because we were we had posited that it was entirely a a fable, a story made to to show the prowess of the Lord Ruler. But if, if that's the actual visage of Ruin Incarnate, it makes it makes for a really cool callback to the Final Empire. Yeah, I don't, I don't believe that to be the case. Was it just black mist? For some reason, serpents stick out in my mind as the depiction from that stained glass thing yeah i'm not i'm not seeing anything of serpents but i remember tendrils like it was described with like tendrils reaching out so it does feel very ominously similar i would say it Mm. also feels very old testament e to me okay as well yeah like the old testament angels kind of style but yeah uh i I do really appreciate that diatribe no i I think it's I think it's a okay. I think that that is meant to be kind of one of the the things, right? Is that there is sort of this I I so in depictions that people have drawn of it, it's less like a ball of snakes and more like there just are snakes sort of surrounding a person. So it's like a bunch of snakes going around someone more or less. Mhm. If that makes sense. Yeah. In particular, the deepness is the way that the mists were described and were manipulated by ruin, ruin over mythology and history. So there's there's a chance that he may have imprinted himself in there just for funsies, but I don't think that's what Brandon's going for. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Sorry. Cool. Sorry to derail a little bit. What was the the initial question? So the core of the question is: What you make of the monologue? that AT shares with Kelsier that's sort of a different spin on the same thing that he told tells Vin and sort of the, the different monologue that Kelsier gets here. Well, Kelsier, I know he's described as really, really good at reading people. Like that's one of his core traits. Mm-hmm. So he basically calls Ruin's bluff through all mm-hmm. of this. 
but it's described so unsatisfactorily. I feel like it, it, it's described almost petulantly. Like you say, I can't do this, so I'm going to do it. So like you say, you say it's not possible. So I know it is possible for like, there's, there's no real backup to Kelsier's sort of response to this conversation with Ruin, which I felt odd about because we're in his head. We know what he's thinking or we could. Mm-hmm. Or I guess we're not. This is entirely third person, isn't it? Yeah. Hmm. No. What? What's the? What's the? We're third person limited, so yeah, we're it's predominantly Kelsier's perspective and head, so it would be a little cheap to like leave it out. I do agree with you on the petulance. I think that that's this gets back to something that we talked about last week, which is the sort of overall depiction of Kelsier feels like a caricature of the previous man a little bit at times. And mm-hmm. that makes for something very different. It also, you know, we, we talk a lot about the cognitive realm and we've, we've made points about kind of the, the caricature. Do you think that there's any influence about what people think about Kelsier on Kelsier himself as only a cognitive image? Maybe. Yeah, I could see that being a justification. Could he be a caricature and because people I, think identity of him is as a imprinted on you caricature. by what other people see? Well, yeah, identity is either linked to your physical self, of which no longer is connected with him; it's been severed, and it, it mm-hmm. is just kind of what people see now. So, right. So, yeah, that that fixes to a certain extent the change in personality i'll say it band-aids i don't know if it fixes <laughs> i i feel i feel comfortable saying it band-aids it it's justifies like, to a certain degree yeah right band-aids i i think yeah. that those for me those those interlocked pretty directly is like it, it's a justification uh, and often justifications can be a-okay but sometimes it's like okay do i love that okay it's fine you know it's a band-aid I don't need it, but it's better that I have it, I guess. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I guess I, I can definitely understand that as far as reading goes. I, I'm i thinking kind of more general. Obviously, you know, I, I agree with the petulant child. I agree with kind of the caricature that we were talking about before. I just kind of wanted your take on how differently this is written versus how the speech is approached with Vin in The Hero of Ages. I, this monologue is better to me by a stretch. It is, but we're also, we also have so much more information, you know? So, so right. Brandon can, can write it knowing that the readers have that information and it can be a little bit more clear and a little bit more true, I guess. I don't, I don't I know mean, the right, maybe not true, but. I think it just paints ruin as a more beautifully complex thing. If that makes sense. The mm-hmm. way that he talks about like it, it was almost so dry in delivery and hero that it painted ruin as this purely in preservation to some degree as these purely like black and white forces. And I think one of the best parts of secret history is that it really colors in those lines significantly. And I think especially with ruin, it does show that like, he cares about the land and the people as as far as like their improvements and change and entropy and you know all the things that he said before but he 
he loves what he created because he knows that eventually he gets to destroy it. And there's just that there's like there's just something more tangible about it this time around. Yeah, I guess this was I guess I'm remembering the conversation that we had as opposed to the actual monologue in the book, because that's exactly what we talked about. Yeah, right. But that was all in the monologue says all those things in heroes but you feel them here like this. Yeah. He's, he's pulling on those descriptions and the world a little bit more. And he's, he's tugging at you, I think. And Kelsier in particular, a little bit more directly, uh, than he ever was with Vin. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. Okay, I, I, I really, it. I like, I like ruins character here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm now a ruin sympathizer. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think Ruin's been trying to do that to us from the beginning, make us a Ruin sympathizer, you know what I mean? Like, he's been, yeah, that's the he's problem. been at it the whole time. Is it a problem? Not from my perspective anymore. Yeah, I don't I don't know. I'm, <laughs> I'm not sure that it is. But, yeah. Okay, cool. So, rounding out this part on the whole, rounding out part four, Ruin ends the conversation by telling him that they're very near the end and that he can't do any good out there, which leads Kelster to conclude that the opposite must be true because everything has an opposite in this world, push and pull, and he goes back to some of those old sayings that he's previously repeated on end and on end. Kelsier continues on over the ocean, begins to walk across it, and Ruin taunts him from the other side, trying to break his will. I think what's really interesting about this component though is that like he seemingly can't follow either he's kind of Mm -hmm. locked what'd you think about that i don't know man there there is there's a very clear change in rules across this ocean for some reason there's new people that that would explain why harmony doesn't change the irie the to well to match the the change in atmosphere of the planet could there be a different reason that he doesn't change the irie maybe but maybe he doesn't have influence okay we're 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 about to talk about this because we're we're at part five but pj what race of people are the irie i thought they were irie there are Lontrians. Yeah. I did make note of the, the magic system and the use of the word Domini. Mm-hmm. Or Domai. 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 Hadn't considered that their race was the same. I figured they had they also influence have silvery from the skin. same gods. <laughs> yeah, they also have silvery skin. Yep. So they're yep. they're literally Elantrians. Ain't ain't that some? Ain't that something? Okay, we'll talk about it more in a minute and how that impacts some of your thoughts. We even get like we get some references to Aeon Dor here. We get we get some crazy shit. So mm. <clears throat> Aeon Dor. The the runes. But, yeah, right, exactly. Oh, just I do want to answer the previous question now that I've reread and resubmerged myself in this again, because this was the only section that I didn't reread entirely so the reason why is the city is actually in the cognitive realm not in the physical realm so he's not interacting between realms he's interacting on the same realm gotcha he manifests differently so he's not he is not physically manifested he's still a spirit a shadow right on this realm which is why he can go through most things without a problem 
but they would be able to see him because they're on the cognitive realm. Okay. Does that make sense? Yep. Okay. And he realizes they're on the cognitive realm. <clears throat> like he, he makes it clear that he knows that. Yeah. It was made clear in part three that he was in the cognitive realm, but that the okay. city is in the cognitive realm <clears throat> by the group. Yeah. Okay. Part five, the Irie. I, I really enjoy this. It's it's kind of nice. Obviously, I mentioned the bit right before this that, you know, these are Elantrians, which is a big deal that we'll, we'll be talking about a little bit later. But I love as well when reading the physical book that the rest of these have pretty much been allomantic symbols for the most part or within kind of the realm of what feels familiar. And then you, you hit this chapter and it's an AO, very clearly, completely mm-hmm. different and foreign. Yeah, what, like four dots with a river running between it? Yeah, yeah. And like the the line, the general line that's always there. But yeah, very cool. Mm-hmm. Very fun, very exciting. Um, yeah, okay. Well, with that, BJ, let's talk about chapter one. Kelsier travels across the ocean. He there, There's no light at this point across the ocean, so he actually ends up tying his entire campfire to the top of his stick that he has. And it's very weird to him because he is lashing this together with vines on top. And it's a whole campfire on the top of the stick, and it isn't heavy. But it's it seems impractical, but it's not, <laughs> which is very interesting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Imagine doing that. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Just imagine trying to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Feels it feels very seem, video game like. It does have a sense of unreality that is very, that feels very video game like. I definitely agree with you there. On top of that, he also feels like a tugging on his soul, which is like an indication that it feels like he's leaving his world. Mm hmm. Leaving something or something's pulling him. Yeah, yeah, that something is pulling him back, which is fascinating. Uh, and it's it's almost as though it's at kind of like the edge of the existence, and it's like as far as he could, as far as he could go, as far as he could reach potentially, um, which is very interesting, very cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so he he ends up finally disembarking from the ocean and ends up in this very strange jungle. And this is a very short chapter all told the trees, you know, become jagged like stone structures on the edge of town here on the edge of this thing. And he sees a light ahead. That is the, that are these cables that will have to, did you have any thoughts on the way that he comes to the Irene and to the edge of this vast ocean? Do you think this is actually an ocean? Do you, what, what do you, you know, I'm more and more starting to think that maybe it's not an ocean, Crossland. Are you starting to think? What do you think it is? <laughs> I, I mean, I think it's a bound of some sort. Mm-hmm. It's it's a, a boundary. It is strictly described as an ocean, but mm-hmm. there's no description of waves or there's anything big fish. that... There's, big There's fish. a gargantuan fish, yeah. But nothing that would make it like a treacherous walk, which is weird. Well, because nothing in the cognitive realm is threatening for the most part. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I'd be curious to yeah. see how it's actually depicted in, in Branderson's brain. If it's like a an Earth ocean or if it's 
just a vast body of liquid. The cognitive realm is perhaps Brandon's most clever invention to me for a lot of different reasons that we're just beginning to explore. But I think one of them is this idea that the cognitive realm is what the people impress upon it or what is impressed upon it by something's identity or what it thinks of itself in the physical realm. And that just leads to some fascinating moments like this where it's like, is is this just the best that Kelsier can do to describe this sort of thing or sensation? Is it the best amalgamation of what people, how people would describe something potentially like space? It, what exactly is this ocean? And why right now, why is it flat yeah. if it's space? Because he, he's running over the top of it, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, man. <laughs> How long do you think it would take to actually get there in, in, as a human? I don't know. I don't know. Kelsey runs really fast, really far, though. So, mm-hmm. For a very long time. For a very long time. For a very long time. All right, cool. Um, I mean, you could yeah. just abuse a bunch of horses. In Probably theory, they're pretty quick. You'd have to get them to the cognitive realm. <laughs> I mean, to get is... to the ocean from Luthadel. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You could get to the ocean easily. But is it... Is this the ocean? Why aren't we at the Southern Scadrian? He's moving west, isn't he? Mm-hmm. Hmm. Maybe it's, it's one of those west-south... <laughs> Fuck-ups. <laughs> One of those classic <laughs> blunders. <laughs> One of those classic blunders. <laughs> Especially classic for the way that the map is laid out <laughs> in the final empire. Yeah, fuck. All right. I I love this shit. This this is again, like I said, I love four and five very deeply. And I you know, this five to me is perhaps my greatest my favorite bit of kelsier's story it is just so kelsier-esque and it's kind of like what you want to see in a prequel not a it's what you'd want in like an actual prequel for kelsier seeing a heist and seeing him kind of get to do his chicanery uh Mm -hmm. and it it just feels good to to actually see that go down yeah it does so kelsier creeps up to an enormous glowing fortress which is really fascinating for a bunch of different reasons there are these cables that seem to be tying in to the fortress itself and powering the spirits of these stones and potentially the people within are also drawing the power from them and it seems to be what's lashing them almost to this realm to keep them powered and in place and powered being a very I'm using that as a very loose term, almost like a Fortnite or not a Fortnite term, a Minecrafty term, like redstone mm-hmm. going to something to keep it powered. Yeah. But um, this it's like a floating cable though, isn't it? The size of a large tree trunk. Uh-huh. In diameter. Uh-huh. Yeah. Glowing it brighter than all get out. Well, there, there's that, and then there's also the different cables that are actually going on the walls, right? So there's, there's right, a couple of different things that are going on. The, from the main trunk. Yeah, yeah, that are, like, leading out, like, veins or vines. Plugging into the grid. Too. Right, right. Some kind of crazy, crazy grid-like shit going on. I um, think this is the Irie. Or this is the, not the Irie, the, uh, what's the, what's the term in Elantris of the the thing that they're tapping into when doing magic the aeon the door the aeon door this is the door this is the door thing don't know mm-hmm. don't know 
PJ, okay. there's only one other Elantra story that we haven't read, or Sal story that we haven't read. Um, I'll tell you what, the answer isn't there <laughs> to what this is. No, I, I got nothing. We're, we're in mm. the same boat of what <laughs> what exactly is this i mean the a long a long and short answer is, is it seems to be some kind of thing that maintains identity over long distances right that that is effectively what we're seeing here with these stones and the identity is so strong that kelsier is seeing plants through these stones he's seeing those original physical locations of these things and you know, it was coming to this realization of the dream of mare being not about scodriel being green necessarily with these plants and flowers but of a different planet and different planets in general and so the dream almost warps further in his mind in a different direction mm-hmm. yeah and the what's more immediately important maybe not more important but more directly important to the story that's being told here the fact that it's such a strong presence that he's not able to phase through it like he is with Mm -hmm. anything else yeah the identity is so potent that he can't reach in more than i think a couple of inches Mm -hmm. fingertips like he couldn't press into it anymore than that so instead he finds different ways to hide and he hides through different things that don't have the spiritual connection that appear to um you know he can still blend in he can still go into the ground he can hide in plants he can hold himself up by his fingertips outside of windows since he's you know effectively weightless and can pull off all kinds of stunts that require coordination that only requires he believe in himself which if kelsier is anything it is an overwhelming amount of belief in himself yeah <laughs> That is quite accurate. Mm-hmm. He's, he's pretty arrogant. Just just a smidge. I think there's a just line a that's something like when he's got his lips in the ground, something about like his he wasn't so arrogant to let his pride get in the way or something like that. And I just went, okay. yes, he is. <laughs> you son of a bitch <laughs> you can't you can't say that. <laughs> you can't just keep getting away with this lying to us <laughs> bold-faced be consistent yeah man but it's it's very interesting because this glowing energy of the castle is definitely merging with kelsier's soul and gives him the ability to interpret this language and so we begin to pick up pieces of the conversation things that we would recognize and names that are very reminiscent of cell of elantris and of that planet in this foreign tongue. We've got a guard named Mayode, for instance. And if I've ever heard an Elantrian name, uh, Mayode. Mayode is an Elantrian name. Mayode. It is. <laughs> Mayode. Dan, who really likes mayonnaise. I, you know, I, I like your joke better, but I cannot <laughs> help but think Maudi. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, uh, but. I don't remember how okay, it was spelled. But, so. <laughs> Mao D. It's a Mao, but without the Mao, Mao without the Zay. Mao Zedong without the Zay. And the Ong. Mao Zedong. But yeah, it's I just. Uh, so I, I just really appreciate all of these different references here. Uh, I will say, my very first read, I remember reading this and finishing this entire part and being so confused 
by everything that occurred and like not feeling like I caught everything well enough that I restarted it. And it was on the second listen that I picked up that they were Elantrians for a couple of different indications. You know, obviously, like you had mentioned, I think it's inside of the episode, but the Doma, the Domai that happens much later. Uh, it's mm-hmm. kind of the the deadest giveaway, I think, if the names weren't enough and the silvery skin and the descriptions therein of these people to make them Elantrians, these ancient people didn't get you there. I think that for sure does. Um, yeah. I So yeah. I hadn't actually drawn the I think we talked about it a little bit earlier. I hadn't actually drawn the connection that they were strictly Elantrians, but I drew the connection to the Aeon Dor symbol. Mm-hmm. and the Domai. But I think that was, that was, those were the two biggest ones. Yeah. And They're, like I said, I just assumed that they were drawing from similar, like, religious sources. Mm-hmm. Right. There's another thing here, though, that a woman, Aloni, Alona, Aloni, I forget exactly how her name is, Alono, Alono, Alano, fuck one of those but she the older woman enters the room and demands to know what's going on because the guards have started to freak out because of kelsier and they believe that there's a spirit afoot and so they activate a device to see if anyone from threnody is about anyone from a threnodite is among them which is fascinating because we don't know shit about threnody (laughs) no or rather you don't know shit about threnody so I guess that's where my confusion came from that I brought up before. Mm-hmm. The fact that nothing pings from this device tells them or they, they make the assumption that there are no cognitive shadows around. But maybe specifically no cognitive shadows from Threnonite? Yes, that is exactly what this okay. is aimed at. If, if you imagine that is what they're clarifying, it's, it's really about the Threnodite cognitive shadows. Threnidian. I prefer Threnidian, as as garbage as that is to say. But they do conflate that into saying that there are no cognitive shadows around. Yes, yeah, which, that, I would, which I took as meaning that Kelsier is something other than whatever a cognitive shadow is, but potentially or, just means that their scope isn't as wide as they are assuming it to be. Yes, I, I definitely think it's the latter. I, I think that that really points to the fact that perhaps, and this asks, this begs a question of the Iris experience on the whole within the Cosmere, right? But perhaps their scope and their limited experience with cognitive shadows is limited to just Threnody. And so that's the only place that they think that these things could come from. Okay. And that begs the question of why? <laughs> why Threnody? <laughs> Yeah, obviously. Before we get too far away from it, I do remember having a thought about Alec. Sure. In Bands of Morning, specifically talking about not needing to eat, I feel like, or not needing to drink or something like that. Like, I remember making a connection to to Elantris in that moment, but it still didn't bring me over the edge. Yeah, no, he's definitely not an Elantrian or connected there. I thought he was an Irie. No, Malwish. No. He's from. Were there any Irie in there? That term is not new to this. That term is entirely new to this. What the fuck? I thought it was in Bands of Morning. Nope. I'll I'll double check for you, but 
I swear to God. Nope. Hmm. There is only one other book that I know of that the Irie were mentioned in, and it is... Was it mentioned at the beginning, like in the first three chapters or first three sections of Secret History? Yeah. Yeah. It was mentioned by Chris to begin with. Chris points that in the direction here. That must be what I'm thinking of then. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This but doesn't, doesn't Alec say something about not having to eat? Alec doesn't say anything about not having to eat. What I think the that he fuck mentions, am I thinking of? He, he mentions the ferrochemical ability to store other things, including the ability to not need to eat. But he doesn't mention uh, that he actually doesn't need to eat. Okay. Because he's a cook. I know. They're the most important people. <laughs> it's true. But yeah, no, he. It's it's not that he doesn't need to eat, but... Okay. Yeah. I'm my brain's getting crossed somewhere and I'm not sure what it is. Welcome to the Cosmere. Yeah, my but brain I'm only gets exposed crossed. to one linear story of it. <laughs> plus plus Elantris. <laughs> plus Elantris. <laughs> Don't discount Elantris. Yeah. Yeah. Well now now you're now you're in different realms of of chaos brain. So mm-hmm. uh, again, a lot of a lot of people that I know that love this story partially love it because of the number of different things that it touches on and kind of makes uniform and brings attention to. Which again, I'll just point and say, if you don't know the question to ask, you're you're kind of like ooh shiny, <laughs> like what's shiny? Mm. <laughs> if that makes sense, what that shiny do though? So cool kelsey follows her of course and they listen about the discussion of fuzz and the potential elimination of the preservation shard and their ability to take it with this funky orb they decide to move up their timetable because of this intruder and so they're going to be taking off sooner kelsey rummages around and finds a book describing a device that can enable someone to ascend as preservation dies this of course is that orb that we see there's also a couple of other things inside of that book that I'll talk about, but before we talk about that, what do you what do you make here? I mean, I'm all for some magical orbs that I get to ponder. <laughs> ponder the orb. <laughs> yes. Definitely <sighs> definitely ponder that orb. So, it seems so very impractical to have a, a potion in an orb. So yeah. maybe there's another use for it somehow maybe like it's not necessarily intended to be just consumed perhaps some sort of conduit for interaction with preservation yeah or an ability to contain temporarily to you know do all kinds of other things there's a great question that's posed here as to what extent we just know that it's technology and kelsier does what kelsier does best when he eventually gets a hold of that orb and just breaks it um you know with style oh wait no that's the wrong guy (laughs) with style yeah (laughs) i guess kelsey is better at destroying so maybe we should put it that way but cool all right words that i wanted to mention andal nauseum connection realmatic theory get our first mention so far of realmatic theory actually i don't think it's the first mention i think technically uh Steris brings it up in bands. St- Steris or Marisy? I'm pretty sure it's Steris talking about the different realms and um, the spirit realm and the. I'm pretty sure it's her within that first section that we read. Okay. Yeah, and Ven- or maybe it was Vendel 
God, part of me thinks it was in Shadows. I'm just going to double check real quick. And just Yeah, okay, it, it, it's Bands. But yeah, it's, it appears to be Vendel. And then also, um, very narrowly, Asteris avoids actually describing realmatic theory, and then but just describes the three realms as it goes. Um, okay. So, yeah, we get that. We also get a mention as Alona is walking through, you know, moving forward, and one of the seated men says, "Devotion protect us." We move forward, and. Alona says, you won't need devotion, El Rayo. And if there's anything we know about big capital letter words. Mm-hmm. That definitely pinged my brain a little bit. Did it ping your brain a little bit? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, but all these gods are so tricksy in their in their naming conventions. So I don't tricksy. know what to make of that. Well, I mean, I, so all told, I think, if I remember correctly, it's mentioned at the very end of Elantris in the Hoyd section. He talks, he, I think he says devotion and dominion, but we know devotion to be a very key aspect of at least one system on Cell, which is the Hraithans, uh religious zealotry sect, and the, God, what are they called, blood makers, that are worshiping basically a deity. And so devotion gives them power physically, uh, which Mm -hmm. is fascinating to finally be able to connect and talk about because Jesus fucking Christ. Have I waited a long time to bring up the fact that Elantris has gods (laughs) and or, or dead gods. Domai is a shorthand of dominion. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. Yeah, mm-hmm. and that feeds into obviously the Elantrian system uh, of power, the Aeon Door, being channeled through um, relation to the world or the place that you're in, and relation to the power center, which is why they're based where why the Elantrians are based in Elantris, because their dominion is specifically important, and the shape that they draw to declare their dominion so they can access and draw upon the power is specifically important. The Mad Bastard. The Mad Bastard <laughs> did a really good job in that book. <laughs> yeah. We just, like, that's that's the thing with Elantris. It's almost like you don't realize how good it is until you're far away from it, and you're like, oh, that book was way more subtle about a lot of these things without kind of putting it front and center in a big way. I've and said it really before, cool. and I, I still feel like it's true. It doesn't feel like it was written before almost any of the Mistborn books. Mm-hmm. It feels so much more nuanced. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, that's the... We're at much more of a political perspective, less of an action perspective. Yeah, whole story. yeah. I, I think there's something... There's definitely something to be said for that. I mean, these books are getting released to some degree in the era of near the era of hunger games and kind of in not necessarily in response but people wanted action and magic together and that's definitely what you're getting here especially in something that is i wouldn't call it ya but ya adjacent or accessible you know there's nothing 
there's not a whole lot that you could say is bad for most kids to read in these outside of violence might go some stuff might go over their head but i think it's acceptable so yeah anyway Mm -hmm. cool all right let's round out this chapter this part rather with the final chapter chapter three kelsier decides that stealing the orb from the vault would be too risky and difficult so merely waits until they come out with it which i think is far more clever and i really appreciate this like it's a very different take, and I, I love how he breaks this down. He's like, the first way to rob someone is by knife, the second way is by the silver tongue, and the third is far more fun, effectively, and like that's this being a specter and kind of scaring them out of it, which is just fantastic. Well, what he says is that it, it, the most fun is tricking someone to the point where they don't realize they've been robbed at all. Right. And this feels very much like knife point at the end it's kind of all three by the very end right yeah because he is using he is using the words to rob them ultimately like he's not talking them out of something necessarily but he is kind of in a conniving way manipulating their senses against them but there's yeah but to actually he has to get them into a position where he's able to just threaten them without risking himself yeah he he is just threatening in the end but he's threatening as ruin still so it's still a trick like it's still a yeah but it's not it's not the foreshadowed sleight of hand that he's talking about in this section but they don't know that it's him so i think it is still sleight of handy yeah if that yeah. makes sense. Like, I, I, I see, where, I see what you're saying and what you're coming very from. Very specifically, but. he says the best ones are the ones where, like, they don't realize for weeks that they've even lost something. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And this is definitely not that. I mean, he's he's wearing them down. Um, mm-hmm. So it, it doesn't doesn't have that. Um, but every night, you know, he's, he's stalking them. They stop to drink and he, you know, pulls himself into the ground and is that pair of lips that's speaking up at them. He's whispering in Alona's ear. He's variously talking and offering bargains to all of the different guards to freak them out. And they're basically running themselves ragged, unable to sleep, which is very funny. And they're convinced that preservation is still alive in these moments and is preventing Ruin from actually directly harming or intervening, which is why he hasn't yet. And so they continue to press on because the risk of getting a shard is worth it compared to the the potential loss here. What would you make of that portion of the con? Well, there there is, I feel like, a set of fairly specific and explicit reasons why they believe Ruin wouldn't be able to interact with them or see what they're doing. Do you remember what those are off the top of your head? Well, they believe that he's bounded by preservation, so he's unable to interact. So it's, it is because preservation is so alive that they believe that he isn't going to be able to come for them. But they don't believe that it's impossible for him to be there. Correct. Just to act. But it, but it is impossible for him to be there, seemingly. Right. Yes. Okay. To say that, like, wards were supposed to prevent it from sensing them, um, you know. Yeah. That could be the ocean. I don't know. I think it's worth noting, because I don't know how... We, we had a conversation earlier in this episode that I think we were planning on cutting, but this is where that comes up. 
the fact that he is able to interact with these people. Yeah. Again, uh, that's because they're on the cognitive realm. Though. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I just wanted to make sure that was. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this section ends, of course, like you had mentioned, with basically the ruined puppet with the flaming cloak floating in the sky, freaking him out, tricking him. Uh, Alona gets separated in the chaos as the horses run in a bunch of different directions. And uh, he manages, he, Kelsier manages to fake the death wearing a robe from the fortress and melting into the ground, causing the main group to head home. He knocks out the one guard who's with Alona and whispers from the shadow to leave the orb. And she's terrified and complies with the shadow's wishes and walks back to the old lady. He makes the old lady walk back to the castle because he Kelsier gives her don't reason. suffer no fools. Well, also, it, it put, I I appreciated the reasoning that he gave, making it almost feel for for a moment I felt like he was just being cruel, and it, it addresses that in that he doesn't want her meeting up with the others too quickly to mm-hmm. make them realize that he's been had or that they've been had. Right. Right. I and I definitely agree with you. I don't think that it was cruel or anything like that. I was just saying it as like a more of a Kelsier kind of has no problem with it, but it is there is a purpose to it. There's a reason that he's making her walk ultimately. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What do you think? I mean, what what do you how do you feel about part five and this this sort of chapter? The way this goes, the questions it poses. Part five is my favorite of of all of the parts in this book so far. It's fun. It's thought-provoking. There's a whole lot of information dropped, and I'm sure even more than I. This is, I, I feel like this is the time when we see Kelsier truly what feels like himself as opposed to the external shell of himself. And maybe that's because he's, he's not sort of monologuing to himself, but he's acting on things. So maybe that's not as profound of a thought as, as I'm making it out to be, but it, it, it's the first time in this book where I've truly felt like we're here with Kelsier. Kind of like we're doing something too. Like it, it, it feels like there's, there's a plan. There's there's things in motion. Not that things weren't happening and not that Kelsier wasn't kind of pushing on things and pushing boundaries and trying to discover something, but there is something about physically interacting with the world that doesn't only feel good for Kelsier as he says it, but also feels really great for us as readers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Dig it. I dig it. I dig it. All right. With that, we go into part six. Woo. Ah, woohoo. All right. Here we are. So, part six, of course, as each of these have been, each of the parts that are relating to uh, the name of the sections are named appropriately this one is hero as it connects most directly with the hero of ages a lot to say about this on the whole i don't know i'm gonna 
I'm going to do my best to try to keep it to the end so that if people want to choose to skip my rant, they can do so and, you know, and talk about it then. It might not work out that way, but I'm going to try. I'm going to I'm going to try to hold myself to that. Drink a little bit more of my whiskey. All right. Nine of these little chapters to get through and then an epilogue. So chapter one, Kelsier starts to run back to Luthadel in possession of the orb that he's stolen from the Eyrie, and he sees even worse destruction and deterioration from before. Of course, this has happened as Rune has had months and months and months to ruin the world. He sees three ska die on a rooftop overloaded with ash that collapses on them. Kelsier asks one that transitions to the world real quickly uh, through his realm if if this is over and she says the end is near kind of setting us up for the stakes of this final part of the story here for Kelsier. what would you think of our of our establishing shot i truly really liked that that look into the sky house and seeing the lights get snuffed out and frantically trying to interact with the souls that that came from it i thought that was a great way to showcase the the active destruction of the world around yeah i i feel like one of the things that's almost missing in hero that this again bolsters a little bit is that sense of like worldly danger we get a lot of hero from the perspective of you know emperor lord elland and we see like the crop circles begin to diminish and where they're going to be able to grow land diminish. And we get a lot of like very general kind of looks of like, well, people can't live here anymore. People have moved or they've left. And this just feels so tangible and immediate that it totally changes, totally changes the pace. And I really appreciate that too. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a great little illustrated bit. After running for weeks post that moment, he suddenly hears Fuzz's weakened voice. He tells him to go to Fadrix instead of where he was heading to Luthadel. When Kelsey arrives, he's encouraged by the signs of life and activity in the city that are still kind of going around. Preservation lays down a thin line of light for Kelsey to follow, and he does so. In this moment, Kelsey also shares with Preservation about the orb, but Preservation is very clear that he doesn't think that this will help, that it's Vin that is going to have to take this power. But she can't, because Ruin has hold of her, of course, of which we know to be that earring, along with other components that are pushing her away from preservation. Mm -hmm. So this is the part that makes me feel like there's not a way to just teleport across the world, (laughs) other than what we know from Elantris because I feel like this would have been the perfect opportunity for Kelsier to stumble upon that ability. If he's very actively and pointedly thinking about Fadric city to suddenly show up there would have been a great introduction to like, Hey, maybe I didn't actually need to be running this entire time, but that's not the case. He just, turns a little yeah. bit and then runs a very far way again. I mean, I I think that you could do incidental, but instead I think that keeping the scope limited also isn't a bad thing to say mm-hmm. like cuz he didn't figure it out. Yeah. But you're right. There, I mean, this would be a convenient spot to drop that in. Yeah, there there is a decent amount of magic being rooted in intention as well. Mhm. So, right. That, right. That so could, he would have had to intend to teleport. If that's how that works. 
Right, right. This is this is all assumption driven around that exact principle. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Right. But Kelsier is led by that thread of light to a city square full of beggars and once again meets the Drifter who shocks him but otherwise ignores Kelsier. This is a really inter- interesting moment where Hoyd like feels the tug of Kelsier and is able to swat back at him almost through the realms. What do you think of the drifter here breaking realms? I felt like it was odd that he didn't make more of a note to Kelsier or, or any sort of acknowledgement really. It could have been so much easier to justify Kelsier's decision to steer Vin away from him if he had made some sort of snide or hostile like comment towards Kelsier here yeah and I mean I think I think it's also important to say that they're on different realms again so one of the things that is important to clarify is that Hoyt doesn't even does Hoyt know that it is Kelsier in that moment probably but maybe not entirely like he can't be entirely sure he's just being kind of touched through the different realms Hmm. good point so it's it's tough to say but i do agree with you because the next portion of what happens here then is ultimately kelsier going out of his way and chasing after vin and feeling alive again as he runs through the city with her and believes that this could be enough for him, which I, I really kind of love this character moment for Kelsier, where it's like, mm-hmm. wow, this this is what like being satisfied as a person could feel like. And he could just do this forever, and if he could do that forever, he'd be satisfied. But of course, we Talking, know that that's not like, explicitly calling Vin the daughter that he's never had. Yeah, which I think he I think he says that in Final Empire at some point. Yeah, yeah, he said, but that. but it's good he, to have that backed up again. Right. He also had mentioned that like she would be the daughter that mare wanted and and things like that mm-hmm. that was also in final empire but that's been reaffirmed throughout the story which i think is great right but but yeah to but that point specifically like he immediately does everything in his power which is limited he seems to believe that she can hear him but we know that not to be true and he's confused by that conclusion that he's made it for himself anyway but he just like waves right or he's just there i don't think he even waves i at least thinking back to vin's perspective of this scene she just sees the mist mist spirit and gets in gets a bad feeling and jumps away yeah exactly and it basically just has it's more of a vibe than anything else and i think this gets back to the fact that he's riding like preservation's power in this moment and so he can't necessarily interact with her while he's holding that power even though she's spiked by the earring right and in theory well um, specifically because she's spiked by the earring yes yeah because of preservation's power and being spiked by the earring yes Mm -hmm. if if he wasn't touching the power, as we see later with Spook, we know that they could directly interact. Yeah. So yeah. that's that's kind of what I was trying to clarify, is that it, it very clearly seems to be the power of preservation that's holding him back here from doing more than vibing that this is a bad idea, which is basically what preservation is also forced to do in the fact that he basically has to jump up and down and use hand signals to, you know, communicate with Elland 
in Hero. Right. So, very similar. But she ends up avoiding Hoyd. This is uh, before you... Hero, right? No, this is Hero. This is during Hero? Yep. Okay. It's in Fadrix. Yeah. So when they're checking out the different, when they're trying to find the different things going on. Yep. So, but this is, I mean, what do you make of this being this sort of, what do you make of this interaction? I, I guess like is kind of the, the whole core. There's Kelsey and Hoy don't like each other. It felt. <laughs> and that's forced. the reason that this doesn't happen. Yeah. It felt forced. It felt like an afterthought of a justification somehow. I don't, I just didn't. There's like not even a reason that he's trying to scare Vin away from Hoyd. Like there's not even a reason that he's trying to steer her outside of that. He thinks that he's a, a, a not good force when, in all of our other experiences, he's actually been fairly helpful, yeah. if not kind of way. That said, to give Kelsier the benefit of the doubt, his last interaction with him was in the well. Yeah, right. Right? And that well is what was containing ruin. So it's conceivable that Kelsier would believe that Hoyt is acting in ruin's best interest. I don't understand exactly how you're drawing that connection or why exactly. Do you want to explain why you think he's, I mean, what, what's his motivation for being at the well to go trying to think, trying to think about this from Kelsier's limited perspective of what's going on. Right. That is, Kelsier doesn't think of him as influenced by ruin. He just doesn't like him. I'm trying to give him as much of the benefit of the doubt as possible, Crossland. Yeah, I, I understand. I, I guess I just not, don't not see... Not necessarily influenced by Ruin, but working towards a mutually beneficial goal. Hmm. Yeah, I think he's just skeptical of Hoyt yeah. in general, which is why he's you know, going I think that that's direction. truly the answer. I think you're yeah. right. I don't like that as a justification for stopping him, or for stopping Finn, though. Yeah. Right. So I'm trying to I'm trying to find a justification that makes sense for why he'd be acting in such a definitive way. Given the yeah. circumstances. We conveniently have the book. The book, the book. Yeah, I mean it's it's such a small it's it's such a small thing too that it's like god, how can we even how can we even give it that much weight? But at the same time then I understand that so much of this, this part, is about connecting all of those dots and connective tissues that Brandon had laid out, right, or laid out in quotes in in different moments and trying to draw them together and pull it together to make it something cohesive. But this one does, I think you said this at the beginning, but this one feels like the biggest afterthought of them all um, Mm -hmm. as far as anything goes because it is literally like a paragraph worth of connective tissue and it doesn't make any sense outside of Hoyt and Kelsier generally having a rivalry and him not trusting him because of he thinks he's skeevy. I think this would have made more sense story-wise, like thinking back to Hero of Ages and, and Vin's perspective in this moment. I feel like all of this would have made a lot more sense to me if that was 
Ruin's imitation of the mist spirit being shown right. in. Right, which is what happens to, right after this. Right, and like that mm-hmm. just – like a, as a means of – but I, I guess – okay. Okay, let's draw this conclusion out even more. That strengthens the idea that Kelsier is unintentionally of ruin to a certain degree. If we're if we're talking about Mare being of preservation and Kelsier being of ruin, not in the same like capitalized sense that the Chandra are little P, little R. I, yeah. Well, the the O, <laughs> little O's. All right, I, they didn't capitalize the O and of, did they? Yeah, yeah. I guess I was just making the like little R, little D joke, yeah. which is the. Yeah. You know, the common political science joke anyway. Mm-hmm. Well, he he is inadvertently helping or helping ruin keep information out of Vin's mind. Helping keep information out of Vin's mind. Yeah, I mean, sure, sure. Drawing down that path does make... I, mean, uh, I accidentally more sense argument. <laughs> yeah, I do not I, like I, it. I believe that's I'm, more I'm trying. I'm trying <sighs> Crossland. <laughs> right. Well, and the other part of that is that he's holding on physically to preservation's power in the moment. So that makes it even harder to, you know, pull, pull for that argument. Needless to say, moving on from this of the first connective tissue bits, um, that neither Crossland nor PJ apparently like. Ru- uh, Kelsier is then suddenly attacked by Rune's power, and AT shows up, and he reveals that the 11th medal was, of course, this ruse to trick Kelsier and taunts him more. Rune explains that nothing is destroyed, just change, and that he and preservation are two sides of one coin. Kelsier tries to punch Ruin, of course, in this moment, as he did earlier with preservation in this sort of petulant child moment, and is instead attacked and feels immense pain as he tries to punch this god of whom will not tolerate his foolishness. I actually didn't mind the monologuing here either. Ruin no, is written either. really, really well mm-hmm. throughout this entire novella. Yeah, I think so. I, I think that he's makes for a really great... I think that this strengthens a number of components of the story. However, inserting Kelsier does not strengthen... <laughs> the story in any way in any material way no yeah cool did you have anything else on the shadow bit that we experience here from heroes to me this is the least offensive of the no it's interact or the second least offensive of the interactions it's not egregious yeah but it's odd i it's kind of meaningless am i missing things i don't don't think so man I don't think so. All right. With and that. It, I, okay. Okay. Let's explore the idea about the, the identity placed upon somebody by others. Sure. Is Kelsier perceived as a person to hold a grudge and to act unreasonably in the name of a grudge? I don't know. I don't think so. Not, not the I, image of Kelsier as the Church of the Survivor. I mean, he could. Not, he not kind the, of does with I mean, the nobleman side. In life. How yeah. he was no, viewed in life. Yeah. Right. I, I'm definitely saying that, but 
all kinds of things would go into a person's identity if they no longer had a physical form, right? So also I'm thinking about the worship and I'm thinking about the other components that could tie into that form. But the idea of trust your gut and act in extremes that that tracks with this. Mm-hmm. And, also tracks and them trying to punch ruin. It, punching gods. Mm-hmm. So I I can I can find defenses to it. I still think it's weird, but it it doesn't make problems for for Vin like some of the future. Yeah, yeah, it doesn't do. it doesn't weaken anything. It just feels purposeless. Unlike some of the other components that I think really kind of diminish character moments. So yeah, cool. All right. With that, we get into chapter two here. Every time Kelsier tries to get close to Vin to communicate with her in Fadric City, as he's kind of chasing around trying to follow her, Rune blocks the path. Rune takes over on the form of a spy, and Vin chases after him, leaving Kelsier behind. This is that other shadow, and so she goes from kind of being chased and feeling this jovial moment to then chasing the shadow, as we see in the story. After Vin has disappeared, the Comlas attack Alan's army, of which we know, of course, from this moment in the story. And we get a really interesting action here as the Colossus die and they enter the cognitive realm. He's shocked to see that they're human. Um, what what do you think about this kind of moment reveal and what happens when a Colossus dies? You know, that answer. Yeah, it made me remember that they don't take dead bodies. They They take injured ones Mm -hmm. because I had completely forgotten that. And I thought they were taking corpses and Frankenstein Frankensteining themselves into existence. So it it reminded me of that. It, I remember having some thoughts about it when it was happening and I don't remember what those were. I don't think they were very important, but just the, the range, I guess, of people that were represented as Coloss was much more diverse than I expected it to be. Yeah. Some are, some are women, aren't there women? There's an obligator, you know, a dead obligator in the moment as well, which becomes Um, important. Yeah. Because he also explains how Coloss are made to begin with, which is an important little bit here. Right. But specifically that there are women coming into the spiritual realm answers a question. I suppose that was posed by Vin regarding gender i guess oh the the hero of ages and sort of the general i'm confused one more time no uh, uh i remember maybe it was ellen i can't remember who but just pondering the coloss and how they reproduce oh, oh, and the are gender. there male and, okay like i think it's where where all the female coloss was one of the questions yes that was yeah. asked and fact the matter is they're there mixed among Mm -hmm. them yeah it's just that when stapled together it doesn't really make a significant difference all is fair and blue and spikes i don't know Uh, (laughs) okay pj all right yeah okay (laughs) all's fair and blue and spikes what do you how do you imagine the spikes that are inside Coloss and Chandra. How do I imagine them? 
Yeah. Well, the Coloss spikes. Sorry, I'm going to start with the Chondra spikes. I imagine them more like tiny nails, like okay. very, like relatively maybe three inches long, four inches long, like very small little little nail boys. Coloss spikes, though, I imagine to be almost like jagged but they gotta kind of be like railroad spikes to some degree because they still have to be pounded through right like so they still have to have like that rounded head but i imagine them being a lot more roughshod and a lot less uniform than like an inquisitor's spike okay what do you think now i have to say it contra i i imagine almost like ornate cufflinks <laughs> okay and Colas, I imagine, like, butt plugs. Oh, no. Because <laughs> they're entirely internal. Like, they don't have to be just pounded through. They're they're pounded into and, and consumed by the flesh. Or surrounded by the flesh. Because you can't see the spikes externally. On Chondra. On Colas. I think, I think you're correct. I don't think it's necessary to see them either. Because the skin grows around everything, right? But I think you might see them to begin with when they're nailed together. You know what I mean? And then they would come to grow around it. But Maybe, like, but... Think about like our, a fresh Our colos. friends didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. It was a huge reveal that there were spikes there. Very true, very, very true. That is definitely a fair point. Um, but yeah, I imagine them like thickens thick boys yeah they're specifically hemologically charged iron spikes so i would imagine they're probably pretty similar to the inquisitor iron spikes which are like railroad ties yeah we talked about that i still imagine them as like really tall thin cones well that's eyes because they're they're kind of oh, flat that's what around like about. that yeah. i don't think those are iron i feel like those are steel Okay. Or is it, it's got to be fucking iron because he's iron eyes, right? Fuck. Steel is still iron, or it's one of each, isn't it? They definitely get multiple of the spikes. Doo-doo. I mean, I mean for the eyes. For some reason, I, I thought one was iron and one was steel. Spikes are pretty sure several inches. Steel inquisitors. They're called steel inquisitors, like the obligator. Many things. Two through the eye sockets, one in the middle of the spine. Eight, one for each node in the torso. Steel inquisitors can have children. No spikes through the balls. No spikes through the balls. Steel spikes in the eye sockets. Okay. Yeah. Obviously, certain only certain metals can steal certain metals or certain abilities and capabilities, so that's important. Anyway, okay. That was a good tangent. We love that. Uh, uh, cool. All right preservation then shortly thereafter we've been talking a lot about the various spikes shows kelsey your vision of all the people that ruin controls in this moment basically extends his vision obviously there's the inquisitors and we also see marsh in that moment then we see a man on the throne of luthadel of whom is obviously penrod we see spook and as mentioned again the marsh steel inquisitors kind of same thing and he tells kelsey to get vin a message because he has not been able to find a way to do so in all of his various intervenings, and that is to not trust anyone pierced by metal, of which, of course, we know to be a very important rule for what we've experienced so far. Yeah, this is his second attempt, right? 
There, there was yeah. a failed attempt of him sending a crazy man into the barracks to spread the word, and that got kind of. That's actually chapter quickly. three. That's the next chapter. Oh, is, is when, that? Yeah. Okay. But yeah, I was thinking that was before this. Mm-hmm. But yeah, when he like basically accidentally encourages the shul- the soldier to start the fight that Demu then fights. Mm-hmm. Or it's very near that moment. Yeah, this this metal plate does it become well? You don't have a metal plate yet. in the main story. You don't have a metal plate yet. Ah, shit. We're not there yet. It's not until we get to Urto okay. and then Spook. Okay. And then Goradel runs the plate. And that's right. Marsh kills yep. Goradel, picks up the plate, reads it to Ruin, gets the information. Yeah. 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 Yep. Okay. Man. Mang. <laughs> There's just there's, so there's, much that happens. There's there's a lot here. So let's let's talk about the little fight. I mean, so Kelsier is trying to figure out the extent of his abilities in chapter three and communicate with the semi insane soldier to get this message. And it's he's really not insane. This guy is relatively with it, and he's seeing if he can kind of just push on him a little bit. But the man garbles the message and merely starts a fight with with those around him. Uh, Rune arrives and is like, you can't even do what you're trying to do. Ha ha ha. Kind of mocks him some yeah. more. And He's very decides, like 1950s bully, huh? <laughs> kind of. <laughs> He's kind of got that energy. Like Biff from Back to the Future. He very, he does have Biff energy in some of these moments, yeah. And, you know, Rune's been interceding on every every individual move that he's tried to make in and around Fadrix, so... You know, Kelsier finally comes to the conclusion that Fadrix isn't the place and decides to go where Ruin is less attention focused. Mm-hmm. Crossland. Where could that be? Could it be Urto? With that, let's go into chapter four. So Kelsier feels Fuzz dying and smashes the orb with Najah's knife. Preservation gives him some final advice in this moment after he, you know, takes that orb including his last instruction that Laris gives out here, and that is to survive. Kelsier manages to take the power of preservation after some struggle. Of course, he knows from an earlier conversation that he doesn't have sufficient connection to really fully embrace the power because he is potentially more of ruin as we come to understand it. Ruin shows up and Kelsier attacks, but of course, as we know, the shard preservation really isn't one of attacking it's one of preserving and so he's trying to wield it wrong and is trying to fight the intent of the shard which is to preserve mm-hmm. so what'd you make of kelsier picking up the shard in this moment and beginning to be this counteractive force inside of inside of the story this fight scene felt a little bit different compared to the previous one in that he's actually feeling out the rules of of this world and what he's able to do and not do. You knew it was coming. Or at least I, I could tell pretty quickly that like as, as soon as he was gearing up to fight while holding the shard of preservation, that goes against the entire point. He's not going to be able to, but it still felt satisfying to have that reveal. I, yeah, I, I liked the way that this part was done. I'll tell you what, I don't like this part. This is when the story falls off the rails for me. I appreciate what Brandon is going for here, but I hate the idea 
that Kelsier has to pick up the shard to protect the world and try to slow down the acceleration that Rune is bringing to the landscape to hold it together long enough so that Vin and Ellen can do their shit. That's um, fair. I, I agree with you on that. For for me, that puts so much emphasis on Kelsier in this moment that I just could not be bothered with. What you're saying is, is that if Kelsier wasn't here in this moment, our characters wouldn't have had the ability or initiative to actually complete their part of the story. I, I just, I, it fundamentally doesn't work for me. Yep. Vin would have never got there if Kelsier didn't pick up the power is stupid as shit. I hate it. But I see what I see what he's going for and I do like Kelsier's exploration. I do again, I can see what Brandon is doing. I just don't like it. And I think that it functions inside of his rule system and I think that it does a very good job of progressing the plot that Brandon intends to progress. I just think that this is the beginning of him undermining the characters' actions, motives, and their own intents in the story to a point in which none of this would have been possible without Kelsier when Kelsier could not have been less a part of the narrative outside of a mental inspiration for a couple of our people as we read mm-hmm. the book, right? And I think that's where I feel this betrayal is I read this book and you're telling me that parts of that book are effectively lies and that the characters and what they felt in those moments are effectively lies yeah yeah that's what we're saying right that's what i'm saying Um, though there there is the argument to be made that without something drawing ruin's attention mm -hmm. why what else would ruin have been doing but like bearing down on but he was doing it anyway from our perspective you know what i mean like that's the thing yes that's true he was doing this anyway from everything that we understood in the story so say by by giving us this addition this additional in quotes layer really what you're doing is you're giving kelsier initiative inside of a story that felt on the other side like evil was winning and so what it does is in this moment, it says, well, evil wasn't entirely winning. We actually had a different guy that was pushing against it in the background. And I just, it reduces the interpersonal stakes of the other story for me. I totally agree with you for the record. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 the good I have, that I can see in this is that Brandon accomplished what he wanted to do. I just don't like what he was trying to do. I have decided to play Brandon's advocate. Oh, I, I think, and I think that that's a reasonable thing to do <laughs> because you. no, I, and truly again, I think that this is a reasonable thing to do because the goal here, I don't, it's not like I think Brandon is some terrible author or anything like that. I think that he's accomplishing what he wants to. It's just not to my taste whatsoever in, in this moment. It, it feels to me, if we we equate things to movies fairly often, and I know that I'm going to be making some MCU jokes in the next book to some degree, but this to me feels like if you told me that Nick Fury was responsible for everything the whole time, and then you you showed that movie of him doing everything the whole time, 
and him accomplishing and like fighting in the background for the Hulk during the Incredible Hulk or making sure that shit lined up for Iron Man and Iron Man. It's like, wait, you mean the reason that he actually managed to get out of that is because Nick Fury did some work with the guy of whom helped him build the suit beforehand. And so he ended up being in the right place at the right time. Like it's too convenient. Yeah. To to be believe to feel right, especially after we already have the context of the original movie. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly what it would feel like. Yeah. Right. It's just. Mm. <sighs> yeah. Oh, and Nick Fury died previously. That's the other important part. And then came yeah, back to it, life. It happens after he died. Right. Yep. Yep. <laughs> exactly. God damn it. Um, so it wasn't even a possibility that was on the board. Obviously, as we know, with how the rest of this goes, Kelsier sees black lines that are tying him directly to ruin, of which is preventing him from holding the power as purely as he'd like to, and shows that connection that we talked about previously, where it seems to imply that he is much more connected or invested by ruin than preservation as an individual here. Uh, he even tries to communicate with those that are open with him, and still doesn't work he finds that he can read people's thoughts now of which is completely different and so he's no longer able to communicate with these broken people necessarily but he can read people's thoughts and so in these moments he's able to have kind of he's he's able to hear thoughts and so he desperately tries of course like preservation had done previously with ellen to warn vin in a similar fashion to show up and try to warn her but because of the spiked earring he cannot interact and rune is able to shove him away in those moments kelsier instead finds marsh and listens to his thoughts and i i love i love this moment because it is a great brotherly moment of kind of realization here between the two of them uh, of who he is and to keep fighting you know as he's telling himself this and it's this reminder that marsh is buried deep inside which i think is a great moment and mm-hmm. kelsier decides that it's the smartest thing not to per- confront ruin directly what do you think of the sort of the post of picking up the power and trying to fight ruin directly and moving to more indirect well i mean the biggest attempts. thing for me throughout this section is and maybe i'm just straight up missing something but trying to figure out where that connection to ruin comes from and if it was via the pits spending so much time in the pits of Hathsin which were effectively ruin's body does that forge a connection between the two of them or if it or if it or was it entirely unrelated? To- PJ, that is probably the best argument that I've heard. I don't know that anyone has this answer necessarily, but I, I like that rationale the best that a lot of his, I mean, you could even say that he's been, he's been tainted since that moment and since Gemmel and everything else and kind of led down what would be a more ruinous path with the 11th medal even and kind of those cracks and those cracks were really, the, the cracks on him were the scars that he got from the pits um so yeah i i love that explanation and, i think that fits. and those scars come from the geodes grown for atm right we're around yeah. atm like i don't know yeah i, 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 I there feel are like that no makes the other most sense black lines visible right like there he doesn't see 
puppet strings to other people just just to himself no i think it's just to him yeah it's likely because he's holding this power of preservation right and it's showing that like you know it's impure to some degree yeah yeah any other thoughts on marsh on his inability to interact with vin i i mean he starts to make connections with vin person just personal not like interpersonal connections but he's connecting the dots here i Mm -hmm. think and i i is he able to read vin's thoughts does he try the earring right then how is he able to read marsh's maybe he can i i think he's kept away from vin which is why he doesn't that's right that's right yeah yeah but i do like the the sort of touching moment there with with marsh and looking into the gooey center of of this hard exterior Mm -hmm. yeah it it does unfortunately set up what I think is one of the biggest betrayals of this story to me, but it is a sweet moment in the moment. Unfortunately, I'm going to have to rail against that decision in a little bit here, but mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, cool. All right, with that, let's go to chapter five. Kelsier searches for places that Rune is paying less attention to and, of course, lands on Orto and where Spook is located. This is a big deal for them because it's going to allow for them to transition elsewhere. Ruin in this moment is urging Spook to murder, as we know, to kill the citizen who's the leader of Urto. And but the plot is not necessarily among his priorities. We know this, especially because he appears to just be able to drive Spook to kill, kill, kill. If we remember from Hero, he's not able to really think of more complex thoughts in different moments when he's away and gone and there and gone and everything else. But Kelsier is able to approach Spook and notes that there are lines of connections between them stronger than those of Martian Vin, and so is able to more directly interact with him. What do you make of kind of the first chunk of this chapter? What I make of it is, nah. Nah, that didn't happen. We can skip nah. the next few sections and uh, Spook can retain his his authority agency? over himself. His agency. <laughs> yeah. That's the word I've been looking for all fucking day, by the way. Like I finally got it right when we started this episode, mm-hmm. but what what did I say? Like something like identity or autonomy? Yeah, you said autonomy, autonomy. Mm-hmm. Uh, but not quite. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm looking for agency. Mm-hmm. It. Uh, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. No, I I think you and I are pretty much on the same page when it comes to this one. This one it is. Rough. <laughs> the second like most it. egregious. Worst to me, again, is Marsh. We'll get there in a minute. But this is horribly egregious. I remember when we were originally covering this, and you were like, what if it's actually Kelsier? And you were just so in on that. And I was like, I don't know. I feel like that would be a really bad idea that would take away Spook's ability to make decisions in this moment. And I was actively fighting against the argument of it being Kelsier, the actual Kelsier in those moments, because I just gotten off of my like second read through of the story being angry about it again. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if you I re- remember I that, remember but that I, conversation. I very clearly remember arguing for almost an hour about agency, whether or not this was actually Kelsier, you know, and I was kind of letting you go in your directions of like, well, could this be Kelsier? And I tried to very specifically say, not no, but that how I kept, I kept trying to get you to how could it be Kelsier and why how would is that not feel my good? problem? Right. 
<laughs> it was not your issue. No, I mean, like, I don't no. have to figure out how. Yeah. I just have <laughs> right. to guess stuff. Is it better that it was actually Kelsey or PJ? Does it feel better? No, no, no it does way worse. It feels so bad. Okay. Okay. The lines of connection are fascinating, I think, and big C connection that kind of feel kind of feel cheatery to me. What what do you think? Yeah. Mm. But I understand it's a it's, big part of realmatic theory and identity and, and kind of everything there in the way that it plays into these different realms. But it just feels like a very suddenly introduced new mechanic that didn't have enough time to make a good payoff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, there isn't exactly a payoff at all here. Yeah. Especially considering, you know, he notes that he has other connections with Vin and Marsh, but that his with Spook is stronger, which is, yeah. I think, if anything, is due to his Spook's idolization of Kelsier more directly in the way that he's kind of fixated on him in a big way. So that makes yeah, sense I to mean, me. It, like, it makes but, sense. I get it. Mm-hmm. But introduce it earlier, man. Right. Or 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 let us explore the... Let us just live in the world where he has little threads of connection to people for mm-hmm. a little while and then be surprised by one that's, hey, a little bit stronger. Yeah. But and instead, I, I, it, it, it's just jumping straight into the strongest connection of right. this new mechanic. In and I think the counter argument again, you know, because we're wielding the Branderson counter arguments against each other as needed um, yeah. on the show to make sure that we aren't just bashing. But I think the the counter argument is that well, the connection wasn't really apparent until he was holding the shard, and so it isn't until he's holding preservation that he wouldn't I, see the connections. And I agree. I still I agree with that. you a hundred percent, though. <laughs> yeah. But this is this is more about storytelling than mm-hmm. like order of operations. Right. Right. Why didn't we potentially see someone else? Why didn't we bump into Sazed and see that there was a connective line, for instance? Or um, random members of the Church of the Survivor. Yeah. Yeah. Just some form of how they would be connected to how they would be connected. So. Yeah. Uh, yeah. As Rune rages on, of course, Kelsier says hope over and 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 over. Oh, my God. How? This is where I get frustrated with Spooks specifically. All he had to do with Rune sitting there and raging is say hope quietly. Hope, hope, hope. And that's that's what gave Spook the ability to overcome as opposed to some in, internal fortitude. It was Kelsier sitting there whispering hope while holding on to a God's body. Like, yeah, I don't like that. I don't know, man. It's... And then yelling survive. <sighs> okay. I can get behind that one. Considering the passing of the torch. And considering that's that's the phrase that got him through the pits of Hathson. Like I, I can I can justify that one. I as a decision to of something to, to say. But Right. Yes. As a decision as something to say, sure. Again, I don't think we should have put ourselves in this situation to begin with, and so we would avoid this problem entirely, because the metaphor of spook 
copying his idol and forging in the path of his idol is far better as a character arc than his idol showing up in a spirit realm to guide him physically to the end posts by shouting at him from the spirit realm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, this one bums me out. Yeah. I'm not going to try to poo-poo this one too much more because I feel like I feel like people can understand where my damage on this comes from without looking too much harder or critically at it. I still better like the assumption that we ultimately landed on when reading the story of it entirely being a ruse by ruin and saving him as a means of better strengthening that bond and tricking him into acting as a pawn. Well, I think that that is what's happening, but then he removes the spike when Kelsier shall survive, right? So he is a pawn up until that moment, and it is ruin as Kelsier up until this moment in which Kelsier actually shows up. Yep. Yep, you're right. Yeah. Yeah. On, on top I'm, of that. I'm doing my best to remember what happened. I know. <laughs> it's it's all good. It's all good. Spook then like springs into action after he yells survive. Ruin chooses not to stop Kelsier, but he does start to burn the city down to cover up this immediate failure. This is, of course, like a small chunk of Ruin because most of Ruin is focused over in Fad- Fadrix, as we know. Sazed is also here, but looks worn down. Of course, this is kind of foreshadowing where Sazed eventually ends up and just to say that he saw him effectively. Again, why couldn't we have seen him sooner? This would have been a great point to bring up a little bit connection and to you know kind of introduce it even if it just pays off immediately yeah kelsier is able to see a little ways into the future though and he sees that there is still hope for the city this is one of those points again in the story like why why do why yeah and then and then he takes this like nugget of future which is cool because sure the shard the shard can see a little bit into the future we get some of that from harmony like he can see a little bit but he can't see too far we get that beforehand in era two so we get some understanding there But this is eventually what leads Spook to enter the building that is on fire and that he pushes him into it to save the day. And that's the reason ultimately that, you know, Spook makes that decision to go into that building, that burning building, when he's just completely zonked and exhausted. And, you know, he's been pewter dragging without knowing it for a long time because of the pewter spike. Um and that there's this hope for the city and the only way that the city survives this is very doctor strange and gamey but the only way that the city survives is if he goes down this specific path and he encourages spook to do the thing again it gives a character that was mostly an ass so much authority over the story that um, otherwise had a very satisfying conclusion. Yeah. Yeah. It, Especially Spook's arc, of which was my favorite arc in the entire fucking book. Ugh. It, it was very... It, it's, it very much taints the, the retrospective story. Yeah. Which is problematic that said thinking about this here is there any implication of the other guy that spooks always with being someone more important here no no i don't Um, think they even mention what's his name although i do think there's a like there is a probability that he is a world hopper as well that he is yeah i i think that there is a high chance yep it seems highly probable 
that he is maybe not with Hoyd, but he is of a mind with in the way that he behaves and acts and otherwise has access to a couple of things that make me question. I mean, Spook's entirely yeah. blind throughout this whole thing, right? Like, does he um, does he actually basically. see this guy? Could it be Hoyd? It's he's able again. Oh, he's, he's not able to entirely see. blind. Yeah, he's got like daredevil vision. Is kind of the way yeah. that it's equated. Yeah. Okay. So again, that's that's chapter five. It is my. <laughs> most egregious not it's my second most egregious complaint um about this section and truly again part six has a lot of great tender moments coming up that i'm excited to talk about but brutally murdered what was previously my favorite book in the series and what made me change it to well of ascension because well wasn't fucked with well made sense well was good front to back um even kelsier's interaction there makes sense like that that works that tracks that's something that preservation couldn't do you know it it feels okay despite like it feels okay it's not my favorite but it feels okay um still puts, puts a lot of the onus on as mentioned a mentor who's kind of an ass but can you run down for me which part is most egregious to you here the most, the worst part to me specifically is it the the conversation with Spook? No, conversation's okay. I'm I'm actually fairly okay with the conversation. The post of that conversation is kind of meh, but it's fine. It's a hallucination. Whatever. I can believe this bit, and I think that that's the entire next chapter. Right? That works for me for the most part. Given given the scene dressing and given everything else, okay. If I take everything else at face value at this point. I can like this conversation. I can enjoy this genuine moment that happens between these two characters. The part that buries me is Marsh and the way that he basically takes credit, that Kelsier basically takes credit for fighting against Ruin's will by distracting Ruin in the last moment and basically pushing against him with preservation's power to aggravate him to attack him. So then Kelsier can drop the power for Vin to pick up. It puts, again, so much on Kelsier that it completely robs Marsh of his single greatest moment in the series and it's so frustrating not only because it's it's marsh and he's been depressed and he's been thinking about killing himself for the entire novel um and like thinking about how that could be helpful in the story but on top of that it's his brother that steals it from him in this moment in yeah it is it is a story selling telling sin to me that completely undermines some of the best heart-wrenching shit from the original book and marsh's entire thing was nothing but sacrifice yeah the entire time yeah. it, it was exactly it was selflessness and the only way that he can make his selfless sacrifice is because kelsier stood up for a second against ruin it made me want to vomit it still makes me want to vomit this is yeah. this is what actually makes me angry about this story is chapter seven yeah and it's not it again it, it is such a tiny section but it, it did so much retroactive damage to the decisions that marsh made and to say basically that marsh even your best efforts weren't enough without kelsier being there in the background to pull the ripcord so that you could do what you wanted to do 
Mm-hmm. Is this seven or six? We still have to talk about six, but it is chapter oh, seven in ju- which that happens. Okay, okay. Yeah. okay. You were, you were asking what was egregious I, that I was mad about. Yeah, that's where so. I'm confused. Okay. Yeah. Well, you, you were asking what was the worst, and it's like, that's the worst. <laughs> but Well, you said this next section is... Oh, I thought I said it was egregious. No, chapter six is okay. fine. Okay. Um, we, okay. can, we can talk about chapter six. Okay. Chapter six is, as mentioned, the conversation <laughs> that happens between Kelsier and Spook. They're kind of lounging in some green grass in like a half-dream state wandering over this is when he's deliriously laying on the bed and kind of half talking with with says in the room as well which is interesting spook has been devoted to kelsier as we know and both have had broken spirits but both had resisted rune as well building a strong connection between them we find out that that's why this actually exists not just some faith in each other but also because of their mutual broken spirits and their ability to push back and resist kelsier in a moment of profound I, I truly like this moment moves me each and every time is when Kelsier tells Spook that he's a hero. Spook, of course, should know that. But it's it is just this great moment of acknowledgement from the guy that he looks up to the most. And I think that if it weren't if Kelsier didn't have to nudge him physically. Exactly. If Kelsier didn't have to nudge him from the spirit realm to get there, this would be a blissful moment of catharsis for me this would be an amazing moment an incredible moment of like holy shit fuck yeah spook you you got yours like you got exactly what you wanted and it would feel incredible it still feels pretty good but it doesn't Mm. have it to me it doesn't have that same sort of release because we've undermined spook's actions and so he didn't actually get to really be the hero kelsier got to be the hero shoving along a physical pawn to do the work but I still really enjoy it. What what'd you think? What'd you think? I I just I can't I can't give up the spook rant, unfortunately. <laughs> I really did enjoy the Well, cuz we are dealing with a kid, right? Like he's still a child here. So that's something to take into consideration a little bit. I liked the explanation of this is a half dream because truly it kind of is. Or maybe that's the best way to describe it without getting too deep into the weeds. Yeah, I didn't love the "you're a hero" <laughs> bit of the conversation because it it does feel patronizing and it, it it doesn't feel genuine or sincere. It it, it feels self congratulatory to a certain. It's extent. written genuinely, which I think is the worst part. Is that it's almost as though. To me, it's almost as though Brandon is a little bit unaware of how this could potentially come off or or Kelsier is unaware of how it could sound. Maybe it's not Brandon being unaware. Maybe Kelsier is just unaware of how that could sound based on the happenings there. I, I don't know. I don't I don't know. I don't know how to defend this one. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Kelsier, of course, urges him with that message and gives him the message about the spiked individuals, of which does eventually lead us to the metal tablet that we'd spoken about previously. Right. Okay. So that's here. Yeah. Yeah. So he gives that information. And then, you know, when says it's like, how do you know that? He's like, he's basically like Kelsier told me in, in the original book. And it's like, oh, what? <laughs> <laughs> and we're, we're to believe in that moment that it was it was something else. It was a different spirit. But in fact, it is actually literally Kelsier in these moments. Yeah. So we go to chapter seven, of which I've already beefed part of the marsh beef with yeah, we, we but i i have go to, to the beef. other sections 
I have to beef the other, the first part of the marsh beef, which is that Kelsier watches Gorodel ride across to try to deliver the information and ultimately ruin someone's marsh to kill him. We've seen this from Marsh's perspective as he's murdered in that moment, or from Gorodel's. I can't remember whose perspective. I think it's Marsh. Yeah. And, you know, Kelsier watches on as Gorodel isn't going to make it. And then Kelsier meets Gorodel as he passes through the cognitive realm and finally gives up hope. This is just, this has, this moment felt like one of the few moments that I felt like didn't pass without getting its due, if that makes sense. Gorodel is specifically highlighted as someone that Vin believes that Kelsier would have killed, right? And is then paraded throughout the entire story as this huge accomplishment, a triumph almost on Vin's part Mm. because he ended up being so critical and important, he survived. And because he lived... And in this moment, the story finally buries him. And then he kind of goes out with a whimper and he meets Kelsier, the guy who would have killed him. And it just kind of, it doesn't, doesn't sit right compared to, and I, I get it. It's it's the loss of hope in this moment. And it's sort of the, the darkness of the end of the world coming and bearing down. But I could, I couldn't help but feel like this meeting was the most lackluster when it had the most metaphorical potential i think if that makes sense it does he he is i feel like it would have been the most on brand and maybe even the most poetic to not interact with him at all and let him walk through silently and and alone i don't know what to make of it like is this a character caricature of kelsier is it not is it just surface level thing like I don't, I don't get it anymore yeah and that's where i think this starts to get a little bit muddy and lost is like what are we what are we trying to get at here with with Gorodel in these moments so again i try very hard not to spend a whole lot of time bashing any any author and again i I don't bash Brandon for this. I just disagree with the storytelling. I think Brandon's a great author. He's written many books that I, I like quite a bit. This just happens to be the one that I dislike the most. And yeah, so mm-hmm. and by a substantial margin, I think that's the other thing to note here is like it's not like it's just the worst of the pile. It's, it offended me. Not not my sensibilities or anything like that, but I. I just felt like I felt a little betrayed as a reader personally, but neither here nor there. Okay, so as mentioned, Kelsier realizes that Rune is not complete without the ATM, so there is still hope in these moments. And he watches as Vin fights all these Inquisitors and then is tortured by Marsh. Kelsier then attacks Rune to distract him, as we had mentioned previously. This distraction works, and Marsh, having read the message himself, removes Vin's earring. This Again, we we talked about the way that I think that this is a massive betrayal of Marsh's character, but not only does it feel like a massive betrayal in this moment of Marsh's character and his ability to put these different pieces together on his own, but it also feels like Kelsier's taking the credit in this moment, which is bullshit. Again, it's it's a different layer of bullshit on top of the previous bullshit that I had cited with stealing Marsh's overall thunder. It's also undermining Marsh's fucking intelligence. It makes him feel like like Frankenstein's monster almost, mm-hmm. as opposed to the man that we know. Like we've lived inside of Marsh's head. We know what he thinks about. We know mm-hmm. 
he's like he's in a challenging spot and he is doing everything he can to mentally push against the bounds that he's found himself in. Yeah. Yeah. But he's not a simpleton, you know, like it, it, man, simpleton that no joke. That's kind of what Marsh begins to feel like in these moments. He's and yeah, truly. Yeah. Yep. So this is the one that offends me the most for the record. Um, in case, uh, that wasn't clear. I think most of the Vin stuff in all honesty, by comparison, I think the Vin stuff is fine. Mm-hmm. I think the Ellen stuff is mostly fine. You can mostly get away with that. For me, it's Spook and Marsh that are the most heavily undermined um, by this. From here on out, I think the story is pretty good. I don't see any issues with it, but it is predominantly these three middle chapters that do a ton of work and damage against the story that I loved. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. I don't Womp Womp. I feel like Continue talking. I'm just gonna pour a little bit more. I'm not I'm not sure if I see this as worse than spooks or not. They're pretty close in my mind. As far as like egregious removal of character agency goes. At the very least, this information that marsh has and critically passes on did have to come from some yeah yeah and i mean it does i i have no i have no problem necessarily with kelsier passing on this information to spook or even i mean there's there's a rationale for spook have to to have mostly put this together when he pulled out the spike on himself because he was doing that inside of his internal monologue anyway so i mean it it could have made sense for spook to have just done it to begin with and to have been the one to pass on the information kelsier doing it's fine but i don't i don't love the credit that that gives kelsier over marsh um and i especially don't love the way that that influence then pervades into the only way that marsh was able to break free in this moment is because ruin was entertained and distracted for a second yeah that's dumb i really enjoy anime anime as a storytelling form is its own thing this feels so anime that i hate it inside of this storytelling medium um it does it it just degrades it okay bases it i'll take your word for it yeah i know I, I, i get it i get it um okay cool so Will Kelsier then ultimately is able to cede the power to Vin when the earring is removed from her, of course, and she ascends in that moment. But Ruin continues to attack him. So they then go off and fight, and we enter chapter eight. So, chapter eight. Kelsier is in agony, reeling from the damage caused by Ruin, and feels the pull of death again and the stretching into the beyond, and he has this possibility of giving up and letting go and being with Mare, but ultimately he decides not to die. And this is a choice that is available to him by virtue of being ascended. So he is choosing not to die in this moment, and there's something very specific about this that Brandon says, which is that he's choosing not to die or stretch into the beyond. He would he would have to choose to go into the beyond or be completely obliterated or destroyed as though there's another way to wipe someone out without sending them to the beyond, which is fascinating. Yeah, 
because that is the spiritual realm. Yeah. Yeah. Gotta break your spirit. You'd have to annihilate someone's spirit. In theory. Or or crack it it up like soup. Yep. Just like that. (laughs) You're welcome. Uh, Yeah, you're all welcome. Um, But his soul is deeply wounded in this moment. And in time, it begins to repair. And he feels it kind of knit itself a little bit back together. Rune is way too distracted in this moment to actually finish him off. And Kelsier gets to watch this final battle between Elend and the Coloss and Vin's struggle with Ruin that happens at the same time. We see the shining moment where Elend briefly burns ATM and Duralamin and sees through all three realms. And so we get that clarification of what exactly happened in that brilliant moment, which I think is important. What do you make that, of kind of this I mean, that perspective? Makes for some crazy implications of what Alamancy is actually able to do. And it, it makes me wonder if this is a function of Duralamin, if it's just strong ATM, what other effects can be found on the other realms when Alamancy is being burned or amplified in whatever way. Yeah, I... How crazy. I like these rules and the explanation of how things work. Who would have guessed? Yeah, I mean, it is it is a very neat kind of section, and it does pose a lot of questions. I do feel like it's a component of Duralamin and Atium, you know, predominantly Atium being a god metal and having some additional capabilities therein and kind of breaking mm-hmm. some barriers in a big way. But it poses the question of, like, what if Duralamin and Lurassium? I was you know? just going to say that. Yeah, like... What the fuck would that do? <laughs> if if it Super gives Mistborn. you the power of a yeah exactly if it gives you the power of Mistborn, what's to say Faircast. it wouldn't? Yeah, I mean, it's something maybe maybe that's what it is. I, I yeah, it poses a lot of questions though in in that exact regard. So and you know it's it is the unification of three realms is unheard of at this point, you know. We didn't even know that the realms existed when in Mistborn Era One, to begin with, um, right? So we can yeah. make an assumption that gold somehow peeks into one of the other realms, but yeah, I mean, what, yeah, I what think there really is us? a decent assumption there to be made with gold and with the eleventh metal as such, right? And I think that that speaks to at the very least with the 11th metal with Malatium that speaks to its capability as a God metal and what that would do. I mean, again, that impact. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Ah, uh, okay. Go ahead. What were you going to say? Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, so preservation runes powers are released when Vin sacrifices herself to delete and they collide in those moments. And E.T. is defeated. Kelsier considers taking the powers for himself in a brief moment. But before he actually does that, Ellen arrives and together they watch Sazed take on both powers as well as become very buddy-buddy in these moments. There's a line that Kelsier says that he kind of claims that he loves Ellen or that Ellen believes that the people that he would see in the afterlife are the people who love him. And he kind of Kelsier kind of leans into that, 
And I hate that. Can I, yeah. I. Who is this man that we're dealing with? Kelsier died for Ellen, and in the very beginning in part one, it's very clear that he resented Ellen in those moments. Um, mm-hmm. As, as a nobleman, growth. more or less. But was, <laughs> yeah, as, as a nobleman, more or less, but was definitely supportive of Vin. And so that's why he does it in this moment and gives up his life and sacrifices. So, and like, sure, that's an ultimate sacrifice that you could equate to some form of love, but that's love for Vin, not love for Ellen. That's the thing for me. So yeah. it feels, I don't know, I, I'm, I'm wonky on that particular paragraph myself. No, that's weird. Yeah. I'm glad you agree that it's not just me because that was one where I was like, I don't know if anyone would agree with that, but that one just kind of hit me weird. But it is it is a sweet moment. And it's great to see Ellen again. It's great to have this kind of true last words with both Ellen and Vin in these moments. And this is where I think for me, this ends up having that potential of being a tearjerker, right? Um, so Vin then shows up, of course, and they hug, you know, after kind of like briefly touching hands, which is kind of funny and rolling that into a hug. Um, yeah, that of was, course, that was kind of funny. Shortly thereafter, we know that AT dies. His redheaded body hits the ground and comes through and Kelsier, of course, decks him and lays him out fully because, of course, Kelsier is to punch a god if he can or a dude, you know, before he stretches into the beyond. Um he says a name, I believe, as well, before he stretches into the beyond. Just double check. Oh, I don't remember would, that. What do you think, uh, I guess, the the whole thing? The deaths, the Beyond reunions. what we've already talked about and the kind of weirdness that goes along with the Ellen part. I didn't mind the interaction punching ruin again is weird and unnecessary and doesn't help back up the character growth argument i just jokingly made he says vax et vax yeah okay looks up and says vax interesting mm-hmm. is that him saying his own name or is that him calling Kelsier Vax. I think he's calling it or calling for something like Vax. I don't know what to make of that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What else? I think for me, the thing that I, I really appreciate is that, you know, we had this conversation on the front end about Ellen and love and sort of, you know, kind of the, the reaction therein. Vin kind of ends up at the end of this chapter kind of calling that bluff of love and sort of his understanding of what he believes love is. And, and says that he's a lot to learn about it, which I think is is fascinating um, because I think it does, at the very least, do a decent amount of character lifting for Kelsier, saying that you've got a lot to learn, dude, from you know his little mentee of whom was literally a god and who chose to give up the power and die. Um, yeah, that is yeah. that is good. Hmm. And, I yeah, I, I don't have a lot of really concrete thoughts on it. Sure. Beyond what we've already said. The the line that she says that I really love, your sacrifice was amazing, but to do the things that you do to defend the world, you had to become something, something that worries me. Once you taught me an important lesson about friendship, I need to return that lesson as a last gift. You need to know. You need to ask. 
how much of what you've done was about love and how much it was about proving something that you hadn't been betrayed, bested, or beaten. Can you answer honestly, Kelsier? And he's unable to answer. 100%. 100%. 100% for myself. <laughs> 100%. I did I did great. And then Ellen and Vin walk off into the beyond. I do like that they got to do that together. Yeah. Yeah. It's sweet that they don't choose, that they don't have the luxury of returning to their bodies, of course, even though Sazed kind of offers not. Mm-hmm. But then we go to the final chapter that we have to talk about this week, chapter nine. Kelsier watches as the Catasandra begins to render the world apart and reform the ash into new mountains and rivers and lakes and everything else and he's able to see all three realms during this process in this moment uh but when the rebuilding of the realm is over he is once again trapped inside of the cognitive realm harmony says it arrives and says that he cannot bring vin or ellen back because he cannot reach into the beyond so there's no way that he can go and fetch them to rescue them uh Kelsier does follow through on the promise that we had discussed at the end of the book, which is to give that power, that ability to spook that turns him into a Mistborn. That was actually something Kelsier asked for. Guess what? I'm actually okay with that. It totally made sense in context. I was down with it. I'm down with it. It doesn't undermine anything. (laughs) Yes, it does. Okay. It does because, and not so much in this story, but in Hero of Ages... Mm-hmm. Where it's implied that like being a mistborn is the ultimate form of being the hero that you're trying to be. Mm-hmm. When yeah, like, it has nothing to do with the powers that you have. That's it's true. a reward, so it, but it's not how it's framed. So initially, I definitely understand exactly what you're saying. I, I want to clarify here. I think that that's not a problem with this story specifically. It's an issue with mm-hmm. both stories. It's an issue with the okay. end result of Spook, right? Which is that in the end, the his arc was kind of about you can be a hero without being, you know, a Mistborn, like you were saying. And this is, oh, hey, now you're a Mistborn. <laughs> yeah, but even um, before that, it's like, oh, hey, here's an actually useful power. I mean, yeah, that's because it's supposed to be the temptation of power, right? So it's it's supposed to be this temptation of power that he gets, right? Um, And so that was supposed to lead him down this road. But then we basically pull a 360 no scope reversal with with the hey, let's make him misborn anyway at the end. (laughs) Um, Stupid. Which, (laughs) yeah, again, gets back to what we were saying, which is that you kind of undermine the point. Yeah. yeah, but I, I again, I don't think that's an issue with this story. I think that's an issue with both stories. I don't, I don't think that that's a, you know. Yeah, I agree. That has really, I mean, it happens here, but that's not. Yeah, it's this it's doesn't not change that. It, it, right. it doesn't retcon anything or make right. any differences. No, 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 no. It just gives us context that it was actually Kelsier that asked for this. And it wasn't from, mm-hmm. it wasn't Kelsier from the beyond. It was just the spirit of Kelsier, which is kind of the beyond, but y- you get the point. Yeah. Yeah. From the grave. It is kind of from the grave. It's so complicated. Anyway, the final bit to talk about here is that Kelsier asks if there is a way for him to return to the physical realm. 
and Sazed very clearly states that he doesn't believe that there isn't one and then vanishes to go do other work. And in that moment, Kelsier decides that Harmony is still a terrible liar despite being a god. Sure. Okay. <laughs> That's a weird conclusion to end the story on. I don't know. Is it? I feel like it is. I, it gives him I something mean, to chase. Sure. But it still just reduces him. Maybe not in, in quite as aggressive of a way, but it still reduces him to that sort of petulant child mentality. I mean, yeah. It Here's the thing, friend. Kelsier hasn't changed or grown at all no he's regressed since the first book he didn't even really grow in the first story like he the the grinch's heart grew one size when he decided to die for ellen and that's what we saw with kelsier in that I mean, moment he is, shrunk three or four not heart sizes but just i yeah i don't like the character of kelsier as portrayed in this story sure I, I guess my core point here is that this sets up something that ultimately Kelsier hasn't really had a character arc. It, you could say that he had the character arc of coming around on Ellen, but even then with the way that this story paints, the way that he actually feels about the nobles still and really didn't care about Ellen that much, in the end, it's kind of a wash. So I, it feels as though he hasn't had a character arc. This sets him up for a journey at the very least to say hey my next thing is figuring out and finding a body and perhaps over the course of trying to find a body kelsier might also find a soul yeah um, to to develop into something Good else point so i i that's that's kind of my core point is that like kelsier isn't finished very clearly he's not a resolved character in any way this story doesn't do a whole lot to resolve him and in fact i think it's not even that it undoes anything necessarily it's that there wasn't anything done with him to begin with so we have what was effectively and you know this is a bit taboo but if you imagine obi-wan in the star wars a new hope right he's one he's a one note character he's a wise guy he doesn't have any growth to actually go through and do that's what kelsier was for the most part and now basically what we've done is we've revived the force ghost of obi-wan kelsier and it's like okay but obi-wan you were kind of a racist and we should fix that right and he's like sure and that's where we're at on the door right now with what the next potential is if that makes sense that does yeah so that's just sort of the the end all be all of what i think the story does is it sets up a potential for kelsier to change and become a character and with the end of bands of mourning we kind of know that he gets a body maybe maybe it seems like he's got a body Mm -hmm. scars on the arms blue alimantic lines drawn from his eye hole it seems seems like a body to me we'll find out we will find out all right final note is the epilogue which switches for the first time in the story to spook's perspective to anyone else's perspective but kelsier's and we get kind of this moment in his humble abode of which is two stories which is taller than everyone else of whom's living in shacks and shanties trying to build the city and put it all together he uh, refers to it as a mansion <laughs> Yeah, he does he does refer to it as a mansion by comparison, which is very funny. 
but he he ultimately gets these and he is instructed to build an earring or have an earring built out of one of the inquisitor spikes and then has a conversation with kelsier about hemolurgy setting up this potential for kelsier to come back as the two begin to interact and plan and plot yeah can't wait for secret history too mm-hmm. here's the thing that- I am looking forward to the Lost Metal, though. I am also looking forward to rereading the Lost Metal with you. I would say I could imagine a Secret History 2 being significantly better. You can't really ruin something to the degree that you, I don't think you could ruin something. Be careful to what the you degree. wish for. <laughs> yeah, fuck me. But, yeah, I, again... This this is kind of the end of the episode, of course, so feel free to skip out if you don't want to hear us kind of rant and rave more about this. But ultimately, don't this tell is, everybody to skip out. I, I, don't, I don't know what else to say. If, if you haven't had a good time up until this point of us being, you know, kind of critical of the story, I, I realistically, I think this is the first thing that we've really hammered on at all. The Stephen King short story. We didn't really hammer on that even, though. Like, we were just like, it's short. It's not a whole lot. <laughs> I could have picked a better one. It's fine. But this is just... I I totally get why people love it. And I think a lot of people also reading this viewed it as re-experiencing that story for the first time. But I think that if you are deeply entrenched in the um, idea and experience of trying to take these characters and try to consider everything, it's a fine summary. It introduces... It reintroduces Kelsier into the mix but I think that that was a a banana split that just got too much whipped cream. Sure. I didn't think of a metaphor. That was the first thing that <laughs> I, came to my mind, so I said it. But I do like a majority of this story. Right. I'd say. The highs are really it's, high, actually. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, I don't feel too bad about us being critical of anything here. Yeah. I, yeah. Again... I, 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 yeah. Hmm. I don't, I don't know if I need to again, but this is my least favorite work of Brandon Sanderson's. I never want to read it again. I, I think I will never read it. I don't it think again. you have to. I don't think I will ever again. It is in one of the signed books that we got done, which means ultimately that I may flip past it a couple of times in the future. But yeah, this, I, we talked about this a little bit at the top. This is a unique story because again it's not a prequel it's kind of a midquel it's it fills in details and i think if nothing else for me this is this was a very cautionary tale of you got to be really careful with some of this stuff like even even though all of these seeds were there in the story previously for the most part and then he's just tugging on them to tell us what was behind them those were really dangerous tugs and sometimes the walls came down yeah. <sighs> yeah. Puppet strings frayed. Whichever metaphor you want to go with. Mm-hmm. All right. Cool. Well, that's it. All for right. This. Appreciate everyone sticking it out with us for what was undoubtedly a very different episode than typical. You know, I, I think that more often than not, we try to approach things from the why this is good actually angle on just about everything and we tried to bring as much of that as possible in addition to 
something that was otherwise just heavily laden criticism cool all right well with that next week we begin the lost metal reading chapters one through ten so i'm very excited prologue Oh, prologue, yes. Prologue through 10. I forget. It's like 70 pages or something like that. It's it's a fairly standard read for what mm-hmm. we've been doing. So very excited I'm to jump very into the story. <laughs> <coughs> Me too, man. You know, it's, it's very interesting for a couple of different reasons. A, it'll be the second time I've read it. I did do a physical read through and then an audio book listen through. So I've technically read it twice, but realistically, they were kind of back to back and going at the same time. So um, for comprehension's sake, and uh, I'm, I'm very... Very excited to explore this kind of a fresh thing with everyone else. I know a lot of people are done with it already, and so they're going to be very into kind of the breakdowns. And yeah, I'm stoked. The end of Era 2 is upon us, PJ. Let's go. Let's go indeed. So that's where we'll leave you for this week. Thank you, as always, Tim and Andrew, for allowing the show to continue to exist through all of your hard work. You can check out our show notes where you'll find links to our schedule, our Patreon, our previous episodes, our websites, all of our social media accounts in one very convenient location. Yeah, absolutely. And in case you were unaware, that would be Words Whiskey Pod on Twitter, Instagram, and Reddit. You can reach out to us via email at wordsandwhiskeyshow@gmail.com. You can join our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash wordsandwhiskey. And you can currently find our t-shirts on TeePublic. This week... We also got the fantastic Spotify wrapped and just want to say thank you all for listening to us as fervently as you do. It's a bit crazy. We calculated the total number of hours of audio that we put out and then decided to put it into days. And PJ and I this year to date have put out about four and a half days worth of audio. And most of you fuckers have listened to most of them, which is crazy. So if you are lacking in our voices something we don't highlight every every time but we do highlight the patreon if you join our patreon you can get about a half 20 minute half hour uh devil's cut episode that we record before every single episode of this show so they don't always go up the same week because we fight with the the podcast feed but we record one every week and yeah yeah, so an extra half hour a week of us is at the ready if you were to join us we're we're a fun community we most of my (laughs) most of my social media time is spent on our patreon discord yes yes i i trying to not even think of it as social media time because otherwise i would have an issue for sure with the amount of time i spend on our discord but feel free to join us we'd love to talk to you matter of fact i would love to hear more about your feelings on the lost metal and where you land on these different different things so give it a check and let us know reach out talk with us chat 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 interaction 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 yes so (laughs) with that we will see you next week goodbye